For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts. Housing in this country, once again, more more good news, I say sarcastically, for those trying to rent, those trying to get on the housing market, those trying to fulfil that basic human right of having somewhere to sleep at night, somewhere safe, somewhere warm, somewhere that you can call your own. 5,735 notices to quit issued nationwide in Q2. 720 of those, the Evening Echo tells us this morning, are in Cork. The number of notices represents an increase of almost a 1,000 on the previous quarter nationwide. The assistant manager of Threshold being quoted as saying that the situation is currently frightening, that it's right across the age spectrum. A lot of older people who have now found themselves in this situation having rented all their lives and now they face a notice of termination. I mean... We were talking yesterday about mortgage rates and about how difficult it is to get a mortgage and how expensive it is to get a mortgage. And then you're saying, well, your only other option is renting. But, you know, at any any month, at any point, you can be told, right, six months and you're out. And all that time, all that money that you've spent, you end up back in square one. I'm hoping to speak to Threshold later on, give people an idea of what's can be available for them, what is available for them if they found themselves in that situation but just an absolutely desperate situation for anybody, particularly for those who have been long term renting and maybe might even have kids and have just been desperately trying to get on the housing market for years they're now still renting and they've been told sorry, your time is up basically, We, we need you to move on Speaking of things in Cork and people in Cork feeling like they've been left down, uh, retained firefighters, they're going to escalate their strike action. They're another group that I'm hoping to speak to later on. Um, They're trying to, you know, they're saying they're being exploited, that it's a vocation for them, but they're being exploited by the government. Um, They've been calling on, I suppose, better conditions. Um, they're saying that one of the main issues, speaking of mortgages, is that as a retained firefighter, you're often not able to work a full-time stable job. Employees won't take you on because you could be called to leave at any moment. You have to live close to the base that you're working in. And when you go to a bank and you say, I'm a retained firefighter, they say, well, what's your basic salary? And you say, well, it's not a huge salary, but, you know, we we get paid by the job. And they say, well, how many jobs do you do a month? And you say, well, I don't really know. It kind of depends. And the bank say, well, are we supposed to know how you're going to pay your mortgage then? Like, it, this could be, you know, how do we know that you're actually going to be able to afford it month to month? You could have a quiet week or a quiet month and all of a sudden then you're struggling to repay your mortgages. So for retained firefighters, they're going to escalate their strike action. Um, they say the work is just too onerous. Um, certain stations around the country have said they've advertised and not a single person has gone in. So they've been talking about escalating strike action. I know they're, they're going dark um, for, uh, is it today? And then from next week onwards, a station is closing every week across the county. And look, I know people can understand that we don't necessarily need a full-time fire service round the clock around the county, or at least that's what people are telling us. But, you know, we look at what's going to happening in Maui at the moment and the deadly wildfires that are taking place over there. And I'm not saying that Ireland is susceptible to the same kinds of extreme weather, but you know, firefighters are there to help during floods. Firefighters are there to help during traffic accidents. Firefighters are there to assist in a whole wide manager man, manner of services. 
And to say that they feel under pressure, I mean, it is the emergency, the frontline emergency services. You have the guards saying that they don't know, there are loggerheads with Drew Harris. We have the paramedics saying that the systems that they use to try and get to their calls is fundamentally flawed. And it means that they're spending up to six or seven hours more than the 12 hour shift they should be doing whilst also giving emergency care and driving. Let's not forget. And then you have the retained firefighters saying, we can't do it. And you have the full-time firefighters in Cork trying to battle to keep Ballancolic open. So emergency services really are those that we have a fundamental service in this country. And yet right across the spectrum of emergency services, workers are saying that their conditions aren't good enough. I just, I want to give a, a very quick shout out. Um, this is a, 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 a Holy Rosary Feast of the Assumption is taking place on Tuesday the 15th of August for those of you who are so inclined. Um, I'm going to come to a text in a second that has asked me about my Christianity, whether I'm Christian or not, and saying, I bet you won't divulge that in the radio. Well, I will, but you're going to have to wait for it. Um, Council's officials say housing conditions are a top priority. The heads of housing at Cork City Council has written to city councillors to assure them that the council's executive top priority is resolving issues related to a local authority. Once again, this is more he- this is more column inches. This is more articles about promises and about things that they're planning to do and like People's Newton's Road. I don't know how many times they want to say it. Just, just get in there and do the work. Can we, can we just, can we just get in there and get the work done instead of promising that we're going to visit and these persons are going to see it and we're going to do it. It's going to be a top priority. Well, if it's a top priority, you'd be out there already getting stuff done instead of talking about it. Cork Gardaí involved in Interpol fraud crime op. Now, this is a very, very interesting story. Gardaí from Cork, part of a major Interpol operation which led to 34 people being arrested and charged in Ireland during April and May. Um, arrests all across the country. Dublin, obviously here, Meath, Kildare, Limerick, Kerry, Leash and Longford. This is called Operation Skeen. Um, this is basically to do with the... Um, Frauds, defrauding of money from um, members of a criminal organisation known as Black Axe. Now, Black Axe are West African based. I think the, the group originates in Nigeria. Um, their symbols are the sim- symbolic of breaking black oppression. Um, they say that they're fighting colonial oppression. I wonder about Ireland's colonial oppression um, I think Ireland knows a thing or two about colonial oppression and not necessarily on the giving side but more on the receiving side so um, obviously this group involved in the uh, in a 1 million uh, euro attempted defrauding during the COVID-19 pandemic um, there were a number of arrests made so I'll be hoping to speak to the head of the Criminal Assets Bureau about that five of those arrested are bank staff Five bank workers arrested in the crackdown. Um, and this is a, a massive international operation, but it just goes to show you the kind of gangs that are operating in Ireland that we don't, that you wouldn't necessarily know about. I mean, I'm going to be totally honest. My ignorance, I hadn't heard of Black Axe up to this morning. And I did a little bit of research on them this morning to find that some of this, some of the work that they do is, look, as you can see, a million euro defrauding during a, 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 a health pandemic. Kind of tells you all you need to know. Um, not a good day for Cork Airport yesterday. Uh, once again, highlighting that decision to p- put it up in Ballygarvan on the top of Airport Hill. Um, it, look, that airport 
I, I'm I'm shocked at the time when the uh, the terrible tragic crash of that flight uh, from Derry, uh, the Manx flight happened, and I suppose a little bit of go home syndrome they call it in the piloting business from the pilot trying to get it on the ground, but. At the time, it was obviously revealed, or that you know, and that people people in the industry didn't know. But it's a Category Two uh, runway, so basically, you have to be within a certain amount of visibility. I think it's a couple of hundred meters. You have to be able to see the runway at that point. If you can't at that point, you have to go to a different destination. I'm sure most people, ourselves included, have an experience being diverted from Cork. It, it seems strange that there isn't more funding provided for Cork Airport to be able to make it a Category 3 full auto land runway and I don't want to get too technical about this but basically that would enable aircraft to, without any manual control, land in heavy weather in very thick fog, the kind that we see very often at the airport but as it stands now they can get to a certain distance but if they can't see the runway at that point they get turned away and that's what happened to F4901 from Stansted F4373 from Edinburgh the Air France 1094 from Charles de Gaulle and um, Shamrock 711 from Hull London Heathrow um, they all got diverted to Shannon and look it's not the end of the world you get in the bus you get back to Cork it's a bit of an inconvenience but um, I, I'm just surprised after all this, after all these years, that, that Cork hasn't received a full Category Three Autoland, particularly given uh, where it is. Um, a very moving, as always, uh, RT Prime Time y- yesterday evening. Um, superb show. Um, yesterday evening's focused on the family of Nora Sheehan, um, and the absolutely horrific experience David George. Um, for the last 40 years, 42 years, knowing that their mother's killer was out there, probably with a sneaking suspicion of who it was, given the evidence that we had seen earlier on the trial, but having to come to terms with the fact that her killer was still out there. Thankfully now, Lo Long has been put behind bars and the family of Nora Sheehan and particularly her sister Sadie has said, I hope No Long rots in hell for what he did to her sister a very a very emotive and uh, you know I probably did it a bit ham-fistedly the other day but it was just really hard I re- find it really hard to imagine what it must have been like to have a woman who even quoted here said she was so kind even back then if a neighbour died or anything like that happened she would always go to the homes and lay them out she brought that with her from the country and a woman who you know was a was you know, worked in a psychiatric hospital herself before um, a fall eight years before her death. Ultimately, unfortunately, I suppose changed the kind of person that she was, but still very kind to her core. And I suppose kept those kind of country values. People would say about looking after your neighbours and and making sure that everybody you care for is all right. But just for her to be to be. Um, to be killed in that way, it was just so um, upsetting for the whole community, not just for her family. And that was borne out in yesterday's um, primetime. 
programme. Uh, Puck Fair did get underway yesterday in the town of Killorglan in County Kerry, uh, claiming to be the oldest festival in Ireland. Obviously, uh, my chat with Mick Michael Healy Ray yesterday, you will remember there, uh, that the goat has been uh, now only put up at the beginning and the end of the ceremony for a certain amount of time. Uh, previously, obviously last year, a huge amount of controversy that the goat was kept up for three days in the blistering heat. I'm sure we'd all love a bit of that heat right now um, but um, yeah um, my conversation with Michael Healy Ray I do have more um, texts on that that I'm going to come back to but um, a great conversation yesterday with the uh, independent TD from South Kerry and on another topic I touched on yesterday Pascal Donoghue condemning protests at libraries across Ireland um, he says for me libraries are cradles within which we grow understanding we grow empathy and we develop ourselves both as individuals families and communities these are the last places in which protests should happen. That, of course, comes off the back of Tisha Gleo Vradkar's comments last week, saying that there was a very disturbing element, but, as he said, even he says here, the extreme left and then the extreme right that wish to be arrested. I just just don't know about those labels of extreme left and extreme right um, and what they do to actually serve to try and you know, I mean, I know people will will always find a way to disagree, and there will always be tension there. But I don't know, just name calling that kind of that kind of rubbish. I don't, don't see what that serves to prove. Um, very very sad story in the island of Maui uh, in Hawaii, um, and otherwise gorgeous uh, island um, never had the pleasure of actually going to Hawaii myself but if somebody wants to send a ticket my way I wouldn't say no um, Paradise Lost um, in Maui um, former TV3 uh, presenter Peter O'Reardon lost his house his car and his possessions in fires that have ravaged tropical Hawaii they've killed 36 people thus far and when you look at the comparisons you know like the town of Lahina uh, or Lahaina, should I say, to pronounce it correctly. You look at the, there's pictures all over the internet and videos of the before and after, and it's just, it's absolutely frightening. Like this amazing kind of colonial town that was so picture perfect in this tropical paradise, and now all you see is ashes and rubble and... It's like something out of a, a post-apocalyptic scene. And very worrying times as well for those working in the PSNI. Distant Republicans say they have the PSNI hit list. Now, whether that's actually the case or whether they're just trying to jump on the fact that they know that it's there, I'm not entirely sure. But if you are working in the PSNI, and I've heard stories from people in the PSNI telling us that we have to check under our cars every single morning, um... It, it must be a very, very frightening experience. But I'm going to stick with the, the police service because I have on uh, with me uh, Detective Superintendent Michael Crine from the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. Um, Michael, I want, I want to talk, chat to you uh, about, obviously, this Black Axe um, situation. Um, but just before I come to that, I suppose you must have an awful lot of sympathy for those I suppose your colleagues in the PSNI because regardless of whether we know that distant Republicans have it or not it must be an extremely worrying time for those working in the in the service up north um, Yeah it, 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 it's a story I just saw in the media so I don't know anything about it but obviously yes it must be very worrying for them Tell me about um, this operation in conjunction with Interpol, 21 countries across the world um, 33 arrested and charged for money laundering. Um, 
when did this kind of come across CAB's desk? Because this has been a major international um, operation. Yeah, it, it's we're the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau, not CAB. Um, oh, this was an investigation we would have commenced in March 2020, following a request we received from Holland through Europol. And, and following on from that, then we, we sought out the assistance of Interpol and Interpol in fairness then brought on board uh, at now just 21 different countries in the world targeting this criminal organisation. Um, what our investigation showed very early on was how coordinated and how organised this type of crime was. But this is the crime with, say, companies, business email compromise, romance frauds, um, all sorts of cyber-enabled frauds. And what we were seeing was we were following the money and the money was all going back to the one places. We could see the connections between the various people involved. We could see the different levels and tiers to the organised crime, how organised, as I said, it was. And uh, the vast, vast volumes of money been stolen worldwide and been laundered through bank accounts in Ireland. Cybercrime is it's just such a it's such a difficult landscape for Gardaí to operate within because of the fact that it's it's changing so often and criminal groups like this are always trying to beat the curve in terms of coming up with new ways to try and part people from their cash. Absolutely, and all these what we call cyber-enabled crimes—they're basically frauds, basically deceptions. Where they now use the internet, and and perhaps the biggest challenge for law enforcement is that there are no borders in in cyberspace. Shall we say we have yeah. seen cases where the victim companies are as far away as Chile, Argentina, Hong Kong, everywhere in the world, and there the money been stolen from these companies is coming into bank accounts in Ireland, and from there being moved into other bank accounts. So that is why the, the involvement of Interpol is, is crucial in this, that it can bring all these police forces and law enforcement agencies around the world together to assist and work together. Black Axe are a, a violent criminal organisation formed in West Africa. They talk about colonial oppression. Why are we seeing so many of their members in Ireland? Well, um, I, it's, it's one of many uh, criminal organisations. There's criminal organisations in, in every country in the world and, and certain criminal organisations specialise in certain types of activity. Um, these specialise in, uh, in this part of the world in the cyber-enabled frauds. Um, uh, I, I don't know if Ireland is, I would doubt it's any, any worse or any better than any other country in the world. Um, unfortunately, where people are prepared to commit crime in order to make easy money, um, there will be somebody in a criminal organisation who will, um, shall we say, use them and abuse them for their own ends as well. Mm-hmm. Um, many of these young people who act as money mules do not know that they are helping a criminal organisation like this. They feel it's a very benign sort of activity. Oh, I'm just giving my bank account to somebody. There's no harm in it. But the harm is that the money from fraud, it finances all sorts of other crimes as well. It goes back to African and other countries where it's used to pay bribes to corrupt and it's paid, it finances other crimes as well. Um, because I suppose the reason I ask is we've we've seen obviously a, a, a obviously serious data breach this, today this week. We've seen previously serious data breaches in the HSE. Are we falling behind in Ireland, given the fact that we're such a a big, you know, I suppose hub when it comes to IT computing? Are we slightly behind when it comes to internet security in this country? 
Um, again, it's not something I, I would be able to answer. Um, most of the of the these companies, um, they're not data breaches as such. They're what's what's known as authorized push payment in, in that the person, the victim themselves, authorizes the payment. They are tricked into authorizing the payment. Um, they receive a, an email which they believe is from, shall we say, a supplier, and they don't realize that it, a bank account number has been changed, and they authorize the payment themselves. Same with romance fraud victims. They are, um, over a period of time, the criminal um, socially engineers them to such a degree that they authorize the money being sent as well. When you receive your your text, your fake text message, you click on the link and you give away your you give away your personal data, your codes, which allows the criminal. So, in most of these, the victim is tricked. This is this is purely simple deception, um, both on um, almost on an industrial scale. Um, which is made easier by the internet. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a, a huge proliferation in terms of these kind of scams. Um, are more resources becoming available to Gardaí to try and fight cybercrime? Yeah, well, the, these uh, these type of crimes really exploded during COVID. COVID was the perfect storm for these fraudsters because everybody's lives moved online. Uh, from working at home to socialising to shopping, everything was being done online. And um, we are always um, increasing our numbers. Um, it's 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 uh, it's an ongoing process. Uh, we have um, recruited more forensic accountants and analysts in the last year as well. And we have a competition ongoing at the moment to recruit more guards. And we recently recruited, uh, I think it was four four new sergeants arrived and six more are on the way to us. So it's an ongoing process and. Uh, Absolutely, we are. It, it's a continuing, ongoing process. Um, and just obviously, this is a this is a real big victory for um, the National Economic Crime Bureau. As we say, I'm just going to list some of the some of the stats. Like three premises nine, uh, searched in Dublin, Wicklow, Longford. Nine uh, arrested and detained under organised crime leg- legislation. Four arrested and detained for money laundering offences. Thirty-three for money laundering. One for gangland offences and money laundering. Nine instances of stolen money recovered, and over four hundred thousand euro worth of stolen monies recovered for Irish companies. That in your division must give you a huge amount of, uh, I suppose, of a boost in terms of going forward and knowing that with the with these victories, it certainly sends out a message to those who are contemplating this kind of thing. Um, these are small victories and, and it's ongoing and it's, it's, it, this is work being done by, across all the guard districts and all the guard divisions. It, it's coordinated by us. Well, a lot of these arrests, these arrests are made in, in Dublin, in Mead, in Kildare, Limerick, Kerry, Leash, Longford and in Cork. So th- this is an ongoing process. Um, since this investigation started, um, there's about 327 persons have been arrested. Um, all over the country as part of this upper, what we call operation scheme since March 2020. This is ongoing. There are a lot more to, to be arrested. A lot more searches will be done. While there was 400,000 recovered, that's just a small number of, of victims who were lucky. And that was because of the work done mainly by the banks in coordination with us as well. So we work very closely with all the banks in Ireland as well. And, and the great, great corporation, they do great work as well to try and prevent this money leaving the country as well. Wor- worrying though that, like, as you speak of banks, five of those arrested were, were bank workers. So it kind of goes to show that even within the financial institutions, these criminals can be acting. Yeah, I think it was two. Um, two, two of them that was arrested in this period were, were bank employees. 
Um, there was yeah. nothing to indicate just that the, the, the Sun reports sorry the Sun reports five that's just why it says five bank staff and black yeah. axe a black axe bust is that the, the, the headline in Sun yeah, so that's, that's where I got that, that figure from yeah well in, in this period of time there was was two of the people that was working were working in in banks there was nothing to indicate that they were using their positions in the banks to further their criminal activities the, the others had jobs in, in, in other positions as well um but um, it, it's an, as I said, it's an ongoing. There are a lot of other people, and this doesn't stop the, the, this criminal organisation from operating. It's not the end of our investigation. It is a, 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 a significant blow to them to have these people arrested and charged and brought before the courts. Um, just reports as well, the concerns that this gang have access to IT companies, that they would have access to financial institutions, that they would be able to place their members in positions where they could abuse the power that they have. Is that something, a line of questioning that Gardaí are continuing in terms of working alongside IT companies and alongside banks to identify individuals that may be partaking in suspicious behaviour? Well, certainly, if, if we come across, some, if we read somebody and it turns out they are working in, in a position where they may have access to data, we would certainly um, liaise with that company and share our concerns with them. Um, uh, it, it, it's when it happens. Um, and, and that's all I can really say on that, but we yeah. do certainly liaise with these companies, yes. And you're saying that this is just a small victory. Um there seems to be a lot more international organised crime that's passing through this country, probably due to the fact that, as you say, there, the internet has no borders. So is that an, an increased challenge for you? Are Gardaí now working more with Interpol than they ever were before, given the fact that, the obviously, with the internet, we are now, as I said, a hub for it, so... Yeah, we always worked um, in, in my time. Thirty have always worked with international partners, and, and the likes of Interpol and, and Europol, in as well, are, are a great. Um, it's a great way of working and making and making contacts with the right people in these countries. We, we are unique here in Ireland. We have one police force, which is very easy to for for an outside co- country to get the right people. Where it can be more difficult if you want to, we we'll say, go to the USA and who do you make contact with the right people who are doing the investigations. But that's where the the Interpol contacts are are a huge benefit to us. But these type of crime, it's it, certainly the internet. Um, facilitate this type of crime. There are no borders. It's instant. Money moves instantly nowadays. It can move from country A to country B around the world instantaneously. That's a great benefit to um, criminal organisations. It's a challenge to law enforcement. It's a challenge to banks. It's a challenge to, to countries as well. And and you were saying about recruiting and extra resources. Is there an appetite for um, Gardaí or for people interested in fighting cybercrime in terms of joining um, the National Economic Crime Bureau or, or joining Gardaí in terms of using the experience that they have? You know, I know that I know that a lot of uh, I know in the US a lot of times can, even those involved in hacking would be kind of almost co-opted by police forces to almost act as a that it kind of inside knowledge. So are you finding that people there is an appetite for people or generation that are used to using computers are now looking to kind of get more involved in that side of policing? Um. I don't know. We, we recruit, obviously, GDC, it's Gardaí, we recruit. There was a huge interest in our most recent competition there. There was, I'd say, over up to 140 different people applied to join GDCB in our most recent competition. So there was huge interest in joining it because Gardaí can see 
that um, it, it is um, the new type of crime almost. It's certainly one of the most prolific type of crimes out there. And there is a lot of very, very highly educated young people joining the guards who are of huge benefit, would be a huge benefit to us. But uh, every guard is not kind of join GDCB. There is a lot of other uh, areas where which must be resourced also. Well, yeah, um, and I don't really want to get into the wider uh, conversation around Gardy. I'm sure you won't be in a position to comment, but um, finally, just in terms of what people can do to try and obviously, look, any any sort of suspicious stuff, ignore it or report it, but is there anything else that people can do to try and assist towards catching or at least reporting these this sort of activity and these, these kind of uh, gangland members? Well, for everybody, prevention is, is the best. It's better to prevent the crime happening. And once money moves across borders, it's very difficult to recover. And as I said, while 400000 was recovered, there's unfortunately a lot of other companies and victims out there whose money was not recovered. But the most important thing is that you protect your data. You protect your own money. Um, you know, be careful before you, you click on a link. You do not give away personal information. And also money news. Um, I send a message to anybody listening who who has who has young teenagers and may not be aware of what the ramifications of being a money mule is. First of all, if you're a money mule, it's a gang like this that you are working for. You may not know it, but this is who you are enhanced, and this is this is who you're giving your data away to. This is who you're giving your copy your password away to. This is who you're giving your bank account details away to. Conviction for money laundering has huge ramifications for any person, but especially a young person, because it affects their travel, employment, future, um, credit rating, plus it carries a potential prison sentence of 14 years. But more importantly, if, if, if the gang launders 10,000 euros to your bank and the bank freezes it, or the, the gang doesn't realise it, they may come after you looking for, you for their money. They may blame you for it. So it's very important that the young people... Are, are aware if they're approached on social media or at a party or wherever social engagement, or can I use your bank account? You say no, absolutely not. You do not give your bank account details over to anybody. Detective Superintendent uh, Michael Crine from the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 104 106. Red FM. Kevin Gavin stepping in for Neil Prenderville. Of this is the final day of it before Neil comes back from his holidays. Remember, you can call us 0818 104 106. Text us 0868 Email us neil at redfm.ie. And I would love to hear if you have been stung or if you've attempted to have been stung by one of these scams to try, you know, try and extract you from your money by some of these criminal gangs. It is absolutely everywhere. You get them from Etoll, you get them from different banks. I mean, I keep getting texts from AIB. I've never te- banked with AIB in my whole life. Um, you know, it's all, all right across the range. I know Revolut, there have been Revolut scams as well. Um, so it's, it's, look, it's just, it's one of those things that it's just absolutely everywhere in society at the moment and um, fair play to um, Detector Inspective um, from the uh, Criminal Arse from the Guarded Economic um, Crime Bureau for um, catching all of those Black Axe members back to texts uh, from yesterday on my conversation uh, about I suppose I was talking with Michael Healy Ray about Puck Fair and that led me to a conversation with John O'Donovan um, who was speaking about the Rose of Tralee and that 
bringing Catherine Thomas on board was another virtue signalling operation and it would get rid of that banter that we've had between Dahi and the contestants and something that I certainly don't agree with. Uh, we are losing traditions every day because of people like yourself complaining that we might as well give up on everything. This country is a joke. What about other cultures coming in such as Muslims and loads of mosques spilled all over the country for them while we are losing different parts of our culture every day because of people complaining. I don't know how many mosques have actually been built. I'm sure I know that people have kind of, you know, members of the Islamic community have re-changed warehouse spaces into mosques. But as far as I know, there's only one purpose-built mosque in the country and that's in Dublin, although I am open to correction on that. The idea that we're not, we're not losing traditions... We're not, we're not, we're not saying cancel puck fair and everything gets to do with it. We're just saying, do, do you really need to stick a goat in a cage and hang it over a street for three days for it to be puck fair? It, it, it just, it, you don't necessarily really need to do that. Um, Jesus, John is really a bloody dinosaur. Fair play to Kev for not giving him an inch. He makes a fair point as well. I totally agree with that man currently being interviewed regarding the Rose of Trilly. There is fundamentally a difference between male and female. Would someone tell that Egypt? It's 2023. Um, what a woke leftist broadcaster you have on today. Well, you're stuck with me for another day. Sorry about that. Jesus, could you not find someone neutral and not so radically left? Get rid of him. He'll be blowing on about the climate next. Kevin, do you understand the argument with John? You're just acting like a snowflake switching off. Oh, okay. Well, unfortunately, you've switched off, so you won't be able to hear me respond to your text, but um, certainly um, I make absolutely no apologies for for uh, for having the opinion that animals' rights should be respected and that there's nothing wrong with having a female presenter on the Rose of Trilly. Um, there are texts in, we listened to Emily yesterday, um, a very difficult situation about her brother um, he lost his stepmother uh, a number of weeks ago and they booked a holiday for him I suppose given eight weeks run in time they were hoping almost two months that his passport would arrive in time but as we know the waiting times for passports are just through the roof every summer and it is always worthwhile checking um, there are people waiting six months she has no hope unless you put on the pressure first passports can take a month or two as far as I know another texter says got my son's passport back today after 10 weeks um, through the post office I'm delighted they weren't bumped up the queue it was stupidity to book a holiday without a passport their own fault I think that's slightly unfair I mean I know that his passport hadn't arrived and, and I suppose you could say that but at the same time you know, if if uh, given what that young man had been through, fifteen to lose your stepmother, all they were trying to do was trying to provide him some hope, and they were they were supposed they were hoping that that, that the passport would arrive in time. Um, yeah, so uh, difficult one um, for them. We do have a competition uh, this week. All this week we've been giving away great passes for events at Cork on a Fork. This will see the city transformed uh, into a big food festival. Um, as I said, Cork is just is supposed to be, we talk about it being a fantastic foodie destination. So all the reason to support uh, Cork and a Fork get out there and try some of the events that are going on at the moment so we've already given away a pair of tickets to the Oyster Shocking Championship we've given away a tickets to the opening night street feast a flavour of Princess Street and yesterday we gave away two tickets for the Cork and a Fork tasting trail with fab food trails I would absolutely love to have gone to that today we are giving away two tickets to sailing shocking and shanties 
which takes place on Sunday, August 20th. You can enjoy the cruise with Cork Harbour Cruises. I can tell you, we've taken it ourselves as the team. They are absolutely fantastic to be out in the water and to be going down the marina on the river. Um, they do fantastic work. Great guides, bar on board, everything you need. Um, two and a half hour round trip from Custom House Key to the Lower Harbour, taking all the stunning sights of the harbour, including Cove, Spike Island, Hull Bolin and Black Rock Castle. It's great to see Black Rock Castle and really the the surprising thing um, f- being on that tour was just the amount of m- fortifications we have in the harbour. I mean, everywhere you look, there's little turret points and lookouts and martello towers. Amazing how how well fortified Cork Harbour would have been at a certain time. So, two tickets to sailing, shocking and shanties, but only if you can tell us your great summer memory. We want to have a great, good bit of crack now. We're heading into the weekend. The sun is just beginning to peer out between the clouds and uh, we're looking forward to what's going to be a fantastic Cork and a Fork Festival. So, uh, two tickets to, to sailing, shocking and shanties if you can give us the uh, your best summer story. So, the funniest one uh, you can think of and we'll be taking your calls right throughout the day. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. You can call us 0818-104-106 or email neil at redfm.ie. Now, talking about services needed and being lack of services. Um, we, we heard all during the week uh, fourteen over 14,000 children on CAMS waiting lists. But even if you aren't an ASD parent, you do face challenges and worries. Um, a headline in yesterday's Echo, more teachers needed. Um, Colm O'Corkra being uh, quoted in uh, from the principal of Clostown, Queen Aoife in Navarre, saying that he had a vacancy for a chemistry teacher. Nobody wants to apply. And a man I have with me, um, principal of Clostown, Eamon Reish, uh, up in near um, Deer Park, Aaron Wolf. Aaron, um, you are being quoted in the, the paper as saying maths teachers are difficult to get, home ec teachers are difficult to get. Why are we struggling so much to try and find teachers to, to teach our children? Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, I suppose, look, teaching, I suppose, is no longer an attractive profession is one of the issues. I mean, the ASTI have a Red Sea survey that they conducted over the last two years, and it identifies a number of issues why people don't want to become teachers. Um, one is job satisfaction. You know, when you survey actual teachers now at the moment, teachers saying, look, there's not much job satisfaction in the role. Um, the role has become a very complicated one as in we're dealing with issues that um, didn't exist maybe 20 years ago. You know, children these days um, have a lot more emotional issues and teachers are having to be a kind of a counsellor, a social worker as well as just a teacher. Um, problems with classroom management affect it. And then you have just the, do people want to become teachers? I mean, when we, I, I love the profession. But when I do ask any young person, you know, would you want to become a teacher in youth school? They all kind of react, oh God, no. Because, look, it would have been seen as a real, look, a very, you know, vocation before and a, and a very, well, you know, I suppose prestigious vocation to take up being a teacher. Teachers were very well respected within the communities in which they teached. Um, and I don't know, is it the changing attitudes from young people or is it the, the way things are changing? But it seems now that, that teachers are almost kind of half babysitters. Well, you know, I suppose, um, <laughs> I don't know what I call them, babysitters. Yeah, I mean, I I, well, I'm so judging, like, I'm not allowed to school that long and I can tell you some teachers that we had spent more time disciplining than they actually have managed to do teaching. 
Well, that's it. I mean, you do ask you do ask students, you know, or young people, would you like to become a teacher? Ask anyone, would you like to become a teacher? And a lot of people reply, oh, God, no, what we put our teachers through. Yeah. So that's kind of a... Uh, we yep. all remember we did give teachers a hard time. And I suppose these days, teenagers... Uh, I'm in the secondary school sector. Teenagers are, 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 you know, they know a lot more about the world now. They're a lot more outspoken than we would have been maybe 20 years ago. And it can be challenging and it can be exhausting. And I suppose when a graduate is comparing the teaching salary to working in the private sector, um, teaching is not financially um, is not uh, you know it's not a financially no, good no it's really. not and, and like uh, speaking to teachers that I know it's it's very much a lot of them getting into the profession you're you're trying to find a school to take you in you you know and a big big part of the issue is that you know to be made permanent you need to be in a school am I right in saying three or four years and you're in a school one year and then you're transferring to another year and every year you're almost starting from scratch to try and find somewhere to actually be full time yeah, I mean, this is the difficulty with teaching as a profession. What people don't really understand is that a teacher, um, you're, you're paid a salary and you teach 22 classes a week. Now, obviously, there's a lot more work than 22 hours because each of those classes need preparation. You need to do corrections and all that. But you're 22 hours teaching time. Now, when I'm timetabling my school, I might have a thousand hours of timetabling to do. But when I do my curriculum plan, I might see that I only need six hours of, say, Irish left to fill. Yeah. And then I offer a job to someone for working six hours. It's and that's impossible for no. someone to go. No, how can you? And, and uh, so we're, we're looking at teaching with the cost of living crisis as well. Yeah. And trying to look at how someone can live in Dublin. First of all, how you could live in somewhere like Dublin on, on the teaching salary anyway is next to impossible. But if you were to live here in Cork, and you're offered only a contract on 10 hours. I started my teaching career, uh, I was only on 12 hours. Now, I was lucky I was living at home, so I didn't have any rent to pay. Yeah. But you, you, you can't do it. No, no. And they're saying like and two teachers who would have an average salary would have to save 35 or 40 grand of a deposit to try and buy a, their first house. That seems to be the situation that we're in regarding teacher salaries, whereas before two teacher salaries would have comfortably uh, gotten you into a home. And I'm, ju- I'm just running out of time very rapidly, Aaron. But there is also a question about you're saying that 25 hours that, te- that teachers have to teach. But oftentimes those new teachers particularly are having to do extracurricular stuff, they're having to do breakfast clubs, they're having to do sports teams in order to try and make their case for a school to keep them permanently. Well, you are, but you know, teaching, like we're called, you know, my school, Claude Damon Reach, it's called a voluntary secondary school, and the whole voluntary thing is teachers are expected to do extracurricular activities. Uh, in this country, look, they're not paid, they are voluntary, and... Um, yeah, you, it is an exception. If you, do, if you do want a teaching job, you do give up you give up your free time after school, so you work your 22 hours, and then you are expected really to put on a few teams after school, or you do a school show. But if you're a real teacher, you actually like doing those things either. But one yeah. problem, Kevin, as well is, you know, teachers emigrating. You know, there's much, there's much better deals. Uh, you can go off and teach in, uh, in Dubai, and it's tax-free. They pay for your accommodation. And if you stay out there for two years in a row, you get a lump sum. So we're seeing mass. Um, emigration of teachers heading off to all sorts of countries yeah. to work in this better prospect than working in Ireland. And finally, um, uh, Aaron, you're you're looking for the PME currently. Two years, the, um, the 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 I suppose the final qualification to get over the line to become a qualified teacher. You're looking for that to be halved. 
Well, uh, look, that's an ASTI policy. So I'm a member of the ASTI, that's a, uh, the Association of Secretary School Teachers Ireland. And that is one of their motions they passed the Congress uh, the last two years that we would seek to have the PME return to what it was before 2014. It was originally it was originally one year to become a qualified teacher. And that was changed based on a Finnish model. But under that Finnish model, uh, the state used to pay for it. But at the moment, we graduates have to pay for their own tuition for two years. You don't get paid for it. How on earth can you live um, on that? You know, there's, there's no pay for doing your PME. You've already done four years of your, your primary degree, and then you have to do another two years teacher training. It's six years to become a teacher. To become a teacher, only to find that there, there aren't any jobs there. When you're trying to get jobs, you can't afford to actually live in the place that you're trying to work in. Um, Absolutely. Aaron Wolf, Principal of Clash, Damon Reach. Sorry, I, w- I wish I had more time with you, but thanks for joining us this morning. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Uh, so you're in with me, Kevin Galvin, for the rest of this afternoon before Neil comes back next week. And uh, plenty of texts regarding uh, the, my situation recently. And I'm going to get to those in a second. But I want to get to a man who is, I think, 11 hours behind us at the moment. Um, but I suppose in an area where time has almost stopped for the last number of days. Uh, Thomas Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. You're originally from McCroom, Thomas. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yes, Kevin, indeed you are. I am from McCroom. Uh, I'm here in Honolulu. Yeah. In in Honolulu, where I suppose things are safe for the moment, but very, very worrying situation happening not too far from you. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, um, indeed. Um, Lahaina has actually been wiped out. It's a, a very um, picturesque town. Um, I would probably call it like um, the Kinsale of the Hawaiian Islands, if you wanted to describe it, okay. uh, to, to, to cock people. It's, it's, it's really picturesque and really beautiful, and I've been there a few times. But um, it's gone. It's just gone. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I saw the pictures and, you know, the, the TV reports, um, you know, Tuesday night of what was happening over there. Um, and it's, it's gone. Um, it's frightening, uh, isn't it? When, like, to describe it. Yeah, well, yeah, even when you see the before and after, you look at the like it is a gorgeous town, you know, um, a real right. kind of like old colonial town. But then you you look at it and it's just it's just completely torched. It's gone. I mean, it was actually um, Lahaina was the capital of the um, Hawaiian nation um, back in the eighteen hundreds. It was the you know, before Honolulu became the capital of where I am, yeah. uh, that was the, the capital of the Hawaiian nation. It was a big whaling town. I mean, I, like I said, I've been there several times, and it was so, like, antique and old and nice. And the winds from Hurricane Dora just blew. I mean, we've had winds here since, uh, I suppose, Monday night. Even here on Oahu, there has been winds blowing. Uh, and very strong winds, like 70 miles an hour gusts. Um, even though the hurricane was 800 miles south of us, uh, we still had all these winds blowing, and it was so strong that I couldn't believe that the, the, the fire actually spread when I looked at the pictures so fast. And it, it, drove, it drove people to jump into the ocean to escape it. I mean, it was like incredible, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. It's it, it that that phrase a perfect storm is is so kind of 
clear here because you, you guys obviously storms aren't unusual for the Hawaiian Islands you're very much out there in the Pacific no. Ocean but no. do you ever remember anything like this happening before? It's never happened like this before I mean we've had wildfires even here on Oahu and you know on other islands we've had wildfires uh, and it hasn't happened anything like this this is actually the biggest natural disaster that's happened to Hawaii since Hurricane Aniki back in the 90s so it, it, it's huge. And the, the the death toll, actually, that they're saying, you know, at the moment, it's actually up to 55 now. Um, uh, and they're saying that, you know, that's a death toll. But I spoke to a friend of mine that's over on Maui, and he just described it as hundreds. That was his description. Now, that's not official. You know, I'm not saying that as an official number or anything. Yeah. But he, he described it as hundreds. How do you, I suppose you must be just wrought with worry for the friends that you have over on the island. I, well, I am, I am, but I've heard from from uh, my friend now, so I'm not so much. I'm, I'm actually uh, just, uh, oh, I don't know how to describe it. I'm, I'm worried for the people, like the, the local people are so nice. The Hawaiian people are so nice. You wouldn't believe how nice they are. They're, they're like really genuine, nice people. And I'm worried for how many people have been made homeless, especially because like buying a home here or, or having a home is like being in Ireland. It's so expensive and yeah. it's so, it's so, um, I don't know, it's, it's so hard to even get a home. And people on, in Lahaina that have had homes for generations have just lost them. Uh, it's, it's disturbing. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I, don't, it's, it's, I mean, the pictures kind of speak for themselves. Um, like, it looks like something out of, like, an apocalypse. It does. It looks like something out of a, a movie, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, like, uh, I mean, imagine uh, like uh, a fire spreading so fast through downtown Honolulu or, or downtown Lahaina, as it was. Um, and as I say, it's it's like the comparison of Kinsale, right? So imagine like a fire running down the mountain and going to the harbor and everybody's jumping into the harbor. It's so scary. Yeah, it, like you say, like out of out of a movie. I, I know that President um, Joe Biden has ordered all available federal assets. Has the fact that I suppose I said President Joe Biden has has kind of ordered all available federal assets to help combat the fires. Um, the U.S. Marines are bringing Blackhawk helicopters to fight the flames. Right. Coast Guard and Navy. Are, are yes. the people in Hawaii feeling that support now from the U.S. or do the people in Hawaii still very much feel remote from I suppose? the motherland uh, well no I mean actually people here feel a lot of it's very somber the mood here now is very somber and people are, are even here in Honolulu um, and we're accepting they've opened the convention center uh, here in Honolulu to uh, people coming from um, over from Maui uh, people have uh, Hawaiian Airlines and Southwest Airlines have reduced their fares to $19 for people over there to come here, uh, even tourists, residents, whoever wants to come, uh, it's been it's been somber, and it's been people are, are like can't believe it. I mean, what people can't believe is the speed that this thing did to Maui. Mm. They just can't believe how fast this happened, 
and there was no warning. I mean, the 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 fire wiped out cell phone towers and it wiped out electricity. It wiped out everything. So there was no warning to the poor people over there, and they didn't know. I mean, people over there were running around and um, trying to warn each other uh, what was happening and to get out. And it, it, the whole electronic system actually failed because, it, like I said, it wiped out the uh, cell phone towers, it wiped out the, the electricity, it wiped out everything on its way as it moved so fast. Can I ask you just in Honolulu, because obviously that's where you're based and have been for quite some right. time. Um, what is it like on the ground? Are there people arriving in droves? Are they arriving from the airport or from the sea? Or you, um, know, you say 2,000 people in the convention centre. I imagine many more are, are trying to make their way now over to, to Honolulu to try and find some sort of refuge. I imagine people have family and friends they'll be trying right. to stay with. Um, I can't say for definite how many people are down in the convention center yeah. um, but they have opened it up the Red Cross has set up a huge base down there, they put in cots you know like um, folding beds and stuff like that um, I don't know how actually many people are in there, I can tell you that I've heard reports that the hotels in Waikiki here are full mm. um, and the price of a hotel room has gone through the roof um, but I actually don't know how many actual people are in the convention center at the moment. But are you seeing people stranded out in the street? Are we seeing people left with basically nothing, trying to um, some trying to pick together some sort of semblance in their life in Honolulu? Um, no, not really. Apart from the regular homeless people, I I I couldn't say that I am. Um, um. I, I I am uh, seeing uh, I, I'm seeing a, a really somber attitude, uh, you know, a really somber feeling among people. Um, I'm seeing. I, I actually went down to my local bar this evening, um, Waikiki Brewing, and they have a they had a place on Front Street in Lahaina, which is gone, um, and their half their brewery on on um, Front Street is gone. And they couldn't even communicate. Nobody can communicate with the people on Maui because they don't have any cell service. Don't have any. Yeah, yeah there's no the communication is is out. Um, the Red Cross have actually set up a, um, you know, like a call in and tell your name kind of a spreadsheet thing, yeah. so you can find somebody. But no, I haven't. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I've seen many homeless. I have. Heard stories of of, um, of of people who are tourists, especially who are just stranded. I've, I've actually heard stories of planes um, coming from Los Angeles that were about to take off uh, and turn back and went back to the gate yeah. and let people off, so they because they didn't they couldn't come to Maui. We've obviously had similar wildfires across Europe in terms of Corfu. Uh, very different in that, right. first of all, thankfully, nobody passed away in, in those islands. But, but flights continued to arrive and things were able to keep going on the north side of the island while there were fires in the south. But in Maui now, and especially in Lahaina, like so much of 
Hawaii's economy depends on tourism, particularly domestic tourism from the US. So even going forward, this is going to have an enormous impact on the island. How, how How much support do you think Maui will need to try and get back on its feet? Oh, it'll need uh, tremendous support. Absolutely. I mean, people are saying that it will take years and years. I mean, the whole town of Lahaina was wiped out. Mm. I mean, this historic town, like I said, it's, it's like it's the Kinsail of the Hawaiian Islands, right? So it was completely wiped out. Um, and who knows? Like, people are saying years and years and years because the whole town, from the, it's, it's a very small town, and it's at the base of a mountain, but it's on the ocean, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it's gone. The whole place is gone. So nobody knows. I mean, they're saying years and years before this will ever, ever come back. And people are now suggesting that, oh, well, now it's going to never come back to its historic state because you'll have big corporations and big, big conglomerates come in and put their big hotels in there. Uh, so nobody really knows. Yeah. Well, you you would, I mean, you would really hope. It actually makes me think of Margao in, in Goa, the capital um, there in India, because it's very kind of like almost like a, like almost like a 19, it says, sorry, 1700s captured in the middle of a tropical paradise. And it, it was, yeah. I have to say, even looking at it from my perspective, I was upset seeing the damage. But as somebody who, you know, you've called Hawaii home for 22 years, you must feel right. uh, just you know it must it must be so so difficult for even as a somebody who has arrived on the island and not born in Hawaii you must feel a real connection right. with the place and you must it must be so upsetting for you to see those pictures. I, I actually I actually do. I mean, it, it was very distressing to me. I mean, if you look at it, it is another island, but it, it's it's literally only eighty miles away from me. Mm. I mean, that's how close it is. It's eighty miles away from Honolulu. Um, and it, it was super distressing to see all the pictures on, uh, you know, on the TV as it was happening. And uh, I, I was distressed about it. And like I said, I called my friend over there and he, I was texting him and messaging him. And can you get back to me, please? I want to know you're safe. Uh, and he did. And he said, yeah. And he's a cock man, too. Uh, and he said, oh, um, uh, it's, there's definitely hundreds of people dead. And. It was, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. It was really distressing. Distressing, yeah. Can I ask you, Thomas, how you ended up now living in Honolulu 22 years? What brought you to the to the island of Oahu? Uh, what brought me here, the, the paradise, what brought me here was the paradise of, of this island, really. I mean, uh, I lived in, I grew up in, in Cork. Uh, I lived there for until I was 22. Mm. Um, I moved to Boston. I lived in Boston for 10 years. I found that super cold, by the way. If you're going to move to Boston, it's, it's, I won't use the F word, but it's fucking cold. Yep. Right? And, and, and um, uh, I decided, yeah, I'm going to move to somewhere. When I, when my, I had life changes, and so when my life changed, I said, you know what? I moved somewhere that's nice and this is nice. It's, I mean, it's paradise over here. And what do you do um, over, do you mind if I ask you, Thomas? Just me being nosy. Uh, no, I'm, yeah, be nosy. I'm a locksmith. I do locks and keys and all like that. Amazing. I'm a locksmith. 
And that, did yeah. you have that profession going over there, or is that something you picked up when you got there? Or? Well, no, I actually, we did that in McCroom. My family business in McCroom, I, I start, that's where I started doing that. Uh, and I did it in Boston. I had my own business for a long time there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've pretty much done all my life. And would you... Uh, and uh, then, uh, sorry, I was going to yeah, say, would you, was, is it a path you would recommend others get out? Well, I'd recommend others to do a trade, a hand, you know, a hands-on trade. Because it's a hands-on trade. And when I came here, I knew that I could do that and anybody would accept me. So it's a job you could take anywhere in your life, mm-hmm. as is an electrician or, you know, a carpenter. Or, you know, if you have a hands-on trade, it, it, you can go anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean... It, no offense to the people in McCroom, which is a, a gorgeous town, but I, I think if I had the choice, I think I know where I'd rather live. Well, would you rather live here or McCroom? I think I'd rather live in Hawaii, to be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> At least I can go to the beach in Hawaii. I don't uh, think there's well, a beach in McCroom. <laughs> well, I, well, I like to go back to McCroom. I mean, in fairness, it, it's a beautiful town. No. All my family lived there, and uh, that's where... Where you know that's where I long to be. Actually, I go back there once a year. I, well, I try to go back there once a year. I haven't been back this year, but um, yeah, and yeah, I'd recommend anybody to take a, a hands-on trade, and you can go anywhere in the world. Even you know, like mechanics. Anybody who's you don't have to be a college graduate to you know to succeed somewhere else in the world. Yeah. Well, and, uh, look, it's a, it's a, it's an absolute uh, paradise where you're living, but unfortunately, it is. A, a pa- as you say, as the headline reads in uh, today's Star, Maui is now a paradise lost. So, you, so you think it will it's take gone. quite an amount of time before we see Lahaina and Maui, even if it is restored to its potential previous. It'll take, multi- it'll take multiple years, Kevin. It'll take mm-hmm. multiple years to even get. I mean, the people that have lost their homes over there, the, the devastation is ca- ca- catastrophic over there. I mean, it'll take multiple years for anybody to rebuild or get their life back together over there. Yeah, and I really do it, hope that it's rebuilt in a way that's kind of respectful to what was there previously. I mean, there would be nothing worse than to see a gorgeous town like that replaced with glass and high-rise buildings. Right, right. I, I'm, that's what everybody's fearful of now. That that's what will happen. I mean, that's what people are saying. That's the buzz. That when I went down to the bar today, that was what they were saying. Oh yeah, all the big people are going to come in and just put their big hotels there now because it's all empty space. Yeah. And it was like, like I said, it was the capital. It was the actual um, uh, kingdom capital of the kingdom of Hawaii back in the 1800s, Lahaina. That small town was the capital, yeah. and now it's gone. I mean, it's it's devastating. Yeah, raised to the ground. Okay, yeah. uh, Thomas, thank you so much for taking the call. I know it's late over there, so I leave you. I leave you get right. on, but I really appreciate speaking right, to you, man, and uh, congratulations on, and welcome. You'll be welcome back next time in McCroom, I'm sure, with open arms. Yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm sure. You, I'm sure you'll come out and buy me a pint. Will you? I I will. We can go to the beach together. Not of honor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, All right, Thomas. Kevin, take care. Talk, yeah. You All too. Right, bye, bye. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818 104 106. Red FM.
80,000 euros we will be giving away later on as part of Red FM's summer cash machine. And do remember that. You can phone us 0818-104-106 or text 0868-104-106. Coming back to your texts again from yesterday and delighted to see so many texts on all different kinds of sides of the argument. And that's exactly what we absolutely love to see here on the Neil Prendival show. Um, back to Emily and her passport. And just a correction somebody did, actually, it was obviously her brother's stepmother who passed away. I, I might have misintentionally said uh, his mother but he obviously is a stepmother that passed away uh, two weeks ago and we have contacted the passport office on behalf of Emily so hopefully we will be able to get some movement there um, somebody said re the passport uh, get onto that person's local councillor I know someone who did that recently and had the passport in a few days she did contact two local TDs so she was hoping that they had said look we should be able to get this across the line and now she's not really sure whether that's going to happen try to afford day turnaround for passports. For that, they will have to apply in the passport office. That's a decent idea. I don't know if you'll be able to get an emergency passport on a first application, but you might just be able to, because she is willing to pay extra for it, given the situation that her brother um, has found himself in. Um, on the subject of this book is gay, went in heavy on yesterday, basically said that I wasn't going to read the passages out on air, and that I think the book should be in the library for the same reason, in that it should be up to people to individually decide whether that material is suitable for their children, not for us as a radio station and not for library staff to decide that. So somebody said regarding the library protest, that book has been out since 2014. Why is that lot only interested in it now? I'll tell you why. The lockdown outrage has passed, as has the vaccine outrage. They're always looking for the next thing to be outraged at. Cheer, literally cheering at the radio listening to Kev speak about it. He is spot on in everything he is saying, Mags. Thank you very much. Another listener says your view on the book is sickening. Thank you very much to that as well. Another one says, you've bottled it. It's filth. 12-year-old kids don't need to be reading this. And that is your opinion. And if you have a 12-year-old son or daughter, you are absolutely entitled to say to them, you don't need to be reading this. Have you a right to tell other people what their children should and shouldn't be reading? That, that's the argument that I'm making. Somebody says, Kevin, you are missing the point. The book is in the children's part of the library. Well, I think it's in the, the teenager section, Right. Is it not? So maybe the teenage section is part of the overall children's section. But you would hope that, again, if you're going to the library, I mean, you would hope that if you're going into the city library or an eight or nine year old is going into a city library, then they're doing it attended by some sort of responsible guardian, that they're not just rocking up into the city library, walking in themselves. I think that would be a bigger issue than them picking up a book off the shelf. So you would hope that accompanied by a uh, a proper, you know, a responsible adult, that that adult would be able to say, okay, well, no, that teen, teen section, stay away from it. That's, you know, that's a bit too adult for you. Or we can go over there together and have a look at some of the books and I will decide what you can take out or don't take out. I mean, that seems to be the obvious solution for me. Somebody says, I think the issue with the LGBT book in the library is that it's in the children's section. As I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a valid reason to remove it when apparently it isn't suitable for children. No, I haven't read the book, but isn't it meant to be extremely graphic and no one will read a passage on air now? Neil did read out some bits before and we were criticised for reading it out on air for some of the language that was used. People were saying we have children this morning. I'm conscious that children are on their school holidays. That Again, some parents think that it's language that their children should not be listening to. Do I have a right then to go on air and start reaming out passages of the book where even younger listeners than 12-year-olds are listening? This is the argument I don't understand from these people where they say, well, it's not acceptable for 12-year-olds to read the book, but then they're all saying, well, read the book out on air. 
So what do you want? Do you want the 12 year olds to listen to it and know about it or do you not want them to know know about it? (laughs) I don't know. Somebody says, that's a BS response. Are you having a laugh? This book has nothing to do with with children thinking they're gay. This is nothing but sex abuse and the exploitation of children. Do I think female genital mutilation is okay? No, it's absolutely not. I really don't know what a book about gay issues for children has anything to do with the mutilation of female genitals that is extreme mental gymnastics I'll give you a perfect 10 on that one no it's absolutely not Kevin you've just proved exactly what people are saying about the media the mainstream media again that's the term the mainstream media what like as if you you know we're some sort of group that collectively get together on a Saturday drink tea and decide what we're going to talk about um, they have their own agenda I understand why you won't go against this filth you're afraid you'll be cancelled by like by many people who stood up against, against sorry I'm trumbling over my words here you're afraid you'll be cancelled like many people who stood up against exactly what the LGBTQI plus community is all about they are not an NGO they have so much influence over the Irish government's agenda after all have we have a gay leader of the country and remember the Catherine's Zappone episode, that is when in July 2021, Zappone was appointed to the newly created position of Special Envoy to the UN for Freedom of Opinion and Expression. She has since lobbied for the creation of appointment for a part-time position. Um, I wonder, just wonder exactly what the government was up to, making up a job yet again for another LGBTQI plus person. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth, say what you mean and don't be a coward. Well, that's a, I'm I don't know how many times you want me to say it and I'll say it again. If you are a parent of a child and you're not looking at what your child is looking at and they're only 11 or 12 years old, then that's on you. If a parent of a child who is, and this book is meant for children, by the way, that are experiencing, this is exactly, you're saying that this has nothing to do with children thinking that they're gay. This is exactly what this book is written for. It's written for children who are going through what they believe is, you know, and they, they're coming out as being gay. You know, they they want a, a guide and this book is supposed to give them a guide as to what to look out for. If you feel that that's unacceptable and you feel that what's in the book is too explicit for children, that's absolutely fine. No, Nobody has an issue with you telling your child that's not an acceptable piece of material for you to read. Nobody has an issue with people stopping seven, eight, nine, ten year olds from going into a teenage section and picking out a book that probably is too adult for their eyes. But for you to walk in and say, well, nobody is allowed to read this book. It has to be taken out of the library. Nobody gets access to it. You're you're stopping then children who are 15, 16, 17 and would find that book useful from reading it. And that's exactly the point that I'm making. So I have absolutely, I'm, I'm no problem being cancelled um, whatsoever. I've no problem talking about what I feel is right. I've no problem calling out parents who are letting their children go in and read a material that is too adult for them. But ultimately, it's up for those parents to make that decision. On mortgages, uh, hold tough on your mortgage. In 1995, we locked in at 11% and it dropped way down and we ended up paying over twice what everyone else was paying for 10 years. We have a tracker on another property with six years left. We will hold tight for six months, I reckon. And uh, in response to um, the money doctor, uh, what has Ukraine got to do with my monthly payment going up and up as banks make massive profits? No, that's an absolutely fair point. I'm going to go to something totally different now and away from what we were speaking about. Um, Today is the day that um, free GP care for under sevens will uh, be introduced. 
Um, certainly for a lot of struggling families that will mean very good news but for doctors it could mean higher waiting lists and more crowded waiting rooms in their practices joining me is Dr Dermot Quinlan uh, Medical Director of the Irish College of General Practitioners and of course GP at Woodview Family Doctor Practice in Clammire um, Dermot is, what's the feeling among doctors this morning? Um, good morning Kevin uh, this is good news it's good news for patients it's good news for families it's good news for children uh, we know that people having to pay to see their GP is a barrier to people accessing healthcare, and it is better to remove barriers. So we welcome this uh, extension by Minister Donnelly and the Department of Health. But it will put ultimately you guys under more pressure, right? We we know that when the under sixes medical card came in, that the children who got under six medical card, their consultation rate increased by thirty percent. So it definitely increased the workload and pressures on general practice. We know that when these 78,000 children get free GP care, that their consultation rates will increase and increase the pressures on general practice. Unfortunately, general practice is under very substantial strain. We know that we currently have just over 4,000 GPs. All the reports, including the HSE and the Department of Health, say we should have over 6,000 GPs. So we are putting additional pressures on a GP service where we simply do not have enough GPs to meet the current demand. However, we are working well with the HSE and the Department of Health uh, with two programmes underway to address the very substantial shortage of GPs. We have rapidly and massively increased the numbers of GPs in training from 155 GP trainees in 2015. This year with 285, we will have 350 by next year. That's one programme, and that, that, but that's a slow burner. It will take between two years and longer before those duly qualified GPs emerge. And then the more rapid response program is we are supporting overseas international medical graduate GPs who would like to come and work in Ireland. We have a two-year program for these doctors to come and work in Irish general practice and specifically in rural general practice. Uh, so this, these are two important pieces that the HSE and Department of Health are supporting the Irish College of GPs in doing. We also need to double the number of GP nurses. GP nurses do a phenomenal amount of work in general practice and it, they do all the baby vaccines, all the smears and all of the COVID vaccines and a, a vast amount of other really important work. And then as we expand the GP team, we need a bigger uh, bricks and mortar footprint to support these and to provide the premises for these clinicians to work in. Yeah. You you obviously highlighted this with the government before this scheme was brought in. Have there been any sort of um, new measures brought in? Have they have they promised anything to try and take the pressure off GP practices? You were quoted a couple of months ago saying that doctors are working too many hours, struggling to take doc uh, holidays, and that overtired doctors make mistakes. And all of that is true, Kevin. Overtired doctors, anybody who's tired will make mistakes. Doctors are working uh, very long hours at the moment. GPs are working very long hours. Many GPs, particularly those in rural areas, are finding it really difficult, if not impossible, to get locum GPs to take holiday leave. So these problems still remain. And this expansion of the medical card scheme is going to add additional pressure into an already highly pressured situation. 
Um, however, we are outliers in Europe in that we are one of the few countries where patients have to pay to see their GPs. We know that general practice is a really cost-effective, high-quality, available service for patients, and we deliver over 85% of all the, all the medical care is delivered in general practice by GPs and GP nurses. Um, and we are working with the HSE and Department of Health. We are you know, rapidly expanding the number of GPs, but that is going to take time. So, and inevitably there will be waiting times for people to get to see their GPs. This will become particularly challenging in the winter. And there are, we know there are a very substantial number of patients, your listeners, who simply cannot register with the GP, that many GP lists are closed. So yes, we have a major crisis with our GP workforce and with our GP workload. And this has implications right across the health service. And I, I know that free GP care is obviously, I, I think we can all agree that it is a good step forward, but is the timing right here? How have we put the cart before the horse? <laughs> I suppose there's never a good time for these for these measures, you know, and, you know, the country is doing well. You know, uh, I think it's probably timely that we start to expand it and we are doing it in a phased process and we are picking the, the people who are most vulnerable, the, the children, the, the children of sque- squeeze middle, um, who face very substantial financial challenges in paying to see their GP. So I think it is it is good to do this. The timing will never be right, but we are working with the HSE and the Department of Health to, uh, to rapidly and substantially expand the number of GPs available so that people can, when they need to see a GP, they will be able to. Well, I would like to say that if parents particularly are worried that their child is very sick um, and they're seriously concerned about their child, they should make sure they see a doctor the same day. If that's their GP, that's great, but that may not be possible, in which case South Dock is available. And if that's not feasible, then the emergency department is a third line. So Yeah, it's it like you, but even you know while saying that South Dock is under pressure we're talking about for my now being closed after 10 o'clock I know other South Dock areas other South Dock practices are are, are considering their, their future they're, they're worried about what the future will bring you can ask parents in Cork about trying to get to South Dock the difficulties in that bring and you can pretty much ask anybody about the country about their experience of being in the emergency services so once it gets beyond your local GP it it's it, the the you know, the, the hill becomes more and more steep. Deeper, yeah. And I suppose, you know, like there's lots of reasons why uh, the crisis has occurred in general practice. Our population is now well over 5 million for the first time since the famine. People are living longer, which is fantastic. But older people need more health care. Mm. Our GP population is like one in six GPs are over the age of 60. So we know that 600 of these GPs age 65 and over will probably have retired by the end of 2025. COVID is still with us. We've heard that on the news this morning. That has put a very substantial additional workload into general practice. Uh, and then the expansion of the medical card. So there's many facets of the increase in GP workload. We have a GP workforce crisis and a GP workload crisis, and that has a resonance right across our health service. But we are working with the HSC and the Department of Health to put plans in place so that people can see their GP, uh, you know, but... Unfortunately, there will be waiting 
times for people to see their GP where pre-pandemic that by and large wasn't the case. Yeah, and it's not just a lack of GPs, is it? I mean, even local injury units, We like if you look at the models we see on the continent where, you know, unless it's something extremely serious, you're not really going to the big hospitals, the emergency departments. You're going into a local injury clinic. You're getting yourself sorted for your broken arm or your sprained wrist or your, you know, whatever it is that, you know, your allergy that's after breaking out. You get sorted the locally injury unit a lot more rapidly than you would in hospital and you're sent on your way whereas it seems here we're funneling everybody into the accidents emergency the big accident and emergency departments around the country I, I suppose the vast majority like our ED departments nationally see 1.5 million people uh, general practice the GPs see about 22 million consultations a year and our GP nurses do 8 million so the vast majority of healthcare is delivered in general practice the contribution of the emergency departments is really important and a shout out to my colleagues in the ED for their very hard work. But in terms of the huge numbers, the huge numbers are seen in general practice. But still, I mean, 1.5 million in a in A&E is still an exceptionally high number for, for it's our population. It's a very high number. And that, that's nationally, it's 1.5 million. In contrast, South Dock, which is where we're most interested in, sees over 200,000 a year. So it puts it in perspective that South Dock sees... Oh, well over about, about 240,000 patients a year. So there's a huge workload undertaken in GP out of hours in addition to what we see in, in, in hours. And then we are very grateful to the contribution of our ED colleagues for their, for their hard work in seeing that 1.5 million. Yeah. Can I ask you, uh, Dermot, and this is something that I've kind of wanted to ask a GP for quite some time. When we talk about the difficulty the health service is facing in this country, kind of Compare that then to the amount of big pharmaceutical companies that are kind of profiting, you know, working in this country. Should should there be more of, a, of an attempt to, to try and get those companies to contribute towards our own health service in this country? Um, I, I, I think the pharma companies, like, they're very welcome here. They provide a vast amount of really high quality well paid employment in Cork we have a, a really good uh, graduate program lead and many of our university courses lead to you know secure well paid jobs in pharma um, so they contribute enormously to our local environment um, they contribute enormously to uh, the advances in medicine you know that there's a huge amount of research and development undertaken within the pharma world so I think they they play a huge role in in our economy locally and nationally. Okay. So this current situation is um, you will be able to get free GP care for your child, but you will be waiting longer. And and how long yeah. is it before we start to see the kind of fruits of those labours of that those new trainees? How long can we expect to see you know these kind of extra delays before we begin to see new GPs put on stream? So we we have a four year GP training program. Like it's a really good GP training program in the UK. It's a three-year training program, so we are very fortunate to have our four-year training program, um, and it's very high quality. So when we went, say, from 155, or last year we 250, now we're 285 GP trainees. But it's going to be four years before they come onto the onto the essentially into the market as fully qualified GPs. So that's a slow burner, but it's a really important long, medium to long-term strategy. We then have a non-EU GP program, which is a two-year program where essentially we're, we're in, inviting doctors to come from anywhere across the world. And this year we will have 100 of these colleagues 
Next year, we hope to substantially expand that and again supported by the HSE. So these doctors are coming from Africa, they're coming from the Middle East, they're coming from India, uh, Pakistan, they're coming from Canada. They're more than welcome if there's doctors in the UK or America who would like to come here. We have a two-year supported structured education program at the end of which they will sit their ICGP exams and get a professional qualification. Mm-hmm. And they essentially, if they come and work here, they are contributing immediately to the health to the healthcare in in Cork and Kerry and nationally, and this is a rural program, supported from the outset by our HSE colleagues. Yeah, I mean, we we you're talking there about the amount of doctors coming in from abroad, and look, I think the HSE would collapse if it wasn't for those coming in from those countries that you said, India, Pakistan. Um, but at the same time, then you have brand new trained Irish GPs immediately leaving the country and working in the likes of Australia and New Zealand. So I know you're talking about the amount of numbers that are training at the moment, but how many of those will actually stay in the country is another question. And do we need to start bringing in some sort of mandatory service within the HSE for GPs that have qualified and made benefit of the education in this country? Yeah, and they're really good questions. I suppose I, I, I'm guilty. I did my GP. I, I trained in Cork, and then I went and did my well, I went to college in Cork, and I went and did my GP training in the UK, and then then went to Australia for a while. But I'm back now. So medics have a long history of working overseas to get additional experience. The really good news, Kevin, is that most of our GP trainees, so it's it's substantially less than 10% when they qualify, actually head overseas. The vast majority stay in Ireland because, you know, general practice in Ireland is a really good career. We have really good support structures. Yes, we have a major shortage, but the benefit of that for newly qualified GPs is they can work in an area of their choice immediately, anywhere from Donegal to Dingle and Dublin to to the west of Ireland so the opportunities are really good at the moment for young GPs to stay in Ireland and our data very reliable data shows that the vast majority of newly qualified GPs are staying in Ireland so I don't think uh, having a coercive approach would would change that substantially Um, that you know young GPs are choosing to stay and work in Ireland which is fantastic Okay, Dr. Dermot Quinlan, uh, Medical Director of the Irish College of General Practitioners and the GP himself at Woodview Family Doctor Practice. Thank you, as ever, for, for your insight. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Now, as I said all week, we've been giving away some great passes for Cork and a Fork. They are seeing the city transformed into one big food festival. And we're looking for your best summer story to tell us. We have two ticket pairs of tickets to Sailing, Shucking and Shanties on Sunday, August 20th. Um, Mark Lonergan, manager of the Shelburne Bar. Sailing, Shucking and Shanties. That sounds like something that might be up your street. Yeah, I misheard you for a second, so I thought something completely different. (laughs) (laughs) I thought thought the guys were going to throw me under the bus with that one, but I think I managed to get it all right. Um, How are you? You guys are also involved in this Cork and a Fork Lark, aren't you? We sure are, yeah. This is our second year uh, being involved with Cork and a Fork, which is, I think, it's a really cool week. Um, This year, we are doing a whiskey and pastry pairing. A whiskey and pastry pairing. See, I've heard an awful lot about this, right? And I've heard about whiskey barrels and you can taste the different flavours. Is it all nonsense? Uh, No, it's not. Uh, You can actually taste uh, different things off different barrels. Uh, Irish whiskey is weird in that way that if you you made the same barrel of whiskey in Cork and up north near uh, Bushmills, near uh, near the top of the country... um, 
same whiskey and put it into the barrel and leave it there for the same amount of time, those whiskies will taste different. Why? Uh, it's due to uh, atmosphere, climate, um, evaporation. Um, in Ireland, we lose 2% of uh, whiskey every year in the barrel through evaporation. And the 2% you lose in Cork is a slightly different 2% to the one you lose at the top of the country, weirdly. <laughs> You guys have kind of really lent into this. I know it's, whiskey is something that you're really passionate about yourself. Um, is there, like, because we've always known about wine tasting, is whiskey tasting becoming the new wine tasting? Is it becoming the new, you know, um, I suppose, vogue um, alcohol to try and uh, get your taste buds around? Yeah, it is. Um, at the moment, Irish whiskey is the fastest growing um, uh, spirit category in the world. And the amount of whiskey tasting groups around the country is exploding. I know the Cork Whiskey Society, uh, every time they have an event, it sells out in about five minutes. So right. I, it, that's, that's nuts. I'd love to hold you for longer, but uh, you're, you're doing the whiskey and pastry yeah. pairing. What whiskies are you pairing with what pastries and why, very quickly? I presume so jam really bonds aren't included. Jam bonds are not included this time. <laughs> so we are teaming up with the great guys at Mayo Cafe. They are rock stars at what they do. So they're bringing some pastries uh, to the table, uh, some savoury, some sweet, and we are pairing those with a um, couple of local, one local whiskey, uh, one not so far away, and one a bit further away. So we are doing a Jemison Black Barrel Proof, a Waterford Peated Whiskey, and a whiskey from a brand called Whistler, which is up the country. Um, it, it is... They are very different, but pair, paired with the pastries, it is unbelievable. Yeah, um, well, if it's your thing, certainly local uh, brands, you always like to support local here, but um, but certainly, I um, wish I had more time to have a chat with you, Mark, to be totally honest, with, but we, we're, fl- we're flying along today. But uh, certainly, the cork and the fork is absolutely flying along itself. And we, again, two tickets, as Mark said, I haven't mispronounced it, sailing shocking and shanties that's on Sunday August 20th do get in touch for that 0818104106 or text us 0868104106 Mark thanks very much cheers up. now the Neil Prenderville show Red FM final hour of me Kevin Galvin and judging by some of the texts I suspect a lot of people will be rejoicing in the fact that this is my final hour to have Neil back on Monday but while I'm here I want to chat to Anne-Marie O'Reilly from Threshold Um Headline in today's Evening Echo, 720 notices to quit. Anne-Marie, good morning. Very worrying landscape for, for people who are renting at the moment. Yes, very much so. And it's something that we're seeing every day in thresholds, you know, in our office in Cork and, and around the country. Um, and since since early last year, to be honest, we have been seeing this um increase in numbers of people receiving notices of termination and uh, coming to us asking do I have to leave? What do I do? And then the struggle then was, was looking for somewhere else to live. You guys have described the situation as frightening. An extra mm-hmm. 720 people mm-hmm. potentially on your doorstep asking for help. What mm-hmm. help can you provide when we have so few houses to rent in this county? Yeah, so in quarter two actually of uh, this year, we had 479 uh, renters in Cork uh, that's between the city and county uh, get in touch with us as they had received a notice of termination. Um, and two-thirds of those had received a notice because the landlord wants to sell. Uh, so it does, it, 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 and, and in thresholds, what we aim to do is keep a person in the home. That's first and foremost what, what we want to do. If that can't be done, 
will provide them with the whatever supports are possible for them to find a new home. But as you pointed out, with few and fewer homes available to rent, that becomes more difficult. So I suppose in the first instance, we'll look at the notice. The notice has to contain a number of things in it uh, for the landlord to be able to act on it. So we'll have a look at that. We'll give the, per- the, the tenant our, our opinion on it. And if um, and then that the, the tenant can then decide if they want to challenge the notice at the RTB and we can support and assist them with that process because that can be quite daunting and a frightening process for people. Um, if it is the case that the, the person has to move out, the landlord can act on that notice, then you know there is now the tenant in situ scheme uh, being operated by the local authorities and we are seeing a good um, uptake of that and, and really work being done um, in Cork on this. So, you know, we'll if need, if needed, you know, we'll get in touch with the local authority on the on the tenant's behalf uh, to say, look, they are interested, the landlord's interested in buying. What can we do? Can we make this happen? Um, so that would be the next step. If the person can't stay in the home, um, yeah. well, how can we, you know, maybe get the local authority by it? Or if they can then go look for another home, um, maybe it's a case, if, especially if it's an older person, they may have some priority on the council list. That may be an option. If it's somebody who is uh, eligible for half and maybe hasn't been availing of it before, that might give them a bit more um, purchasing power when going out to look for summer to rent. But as, as, as we know, there are a few properties to rent and prices are high. Because, look, we had that eviction ban over the winter. Was that time used wisely? Um, it was a very short, it was five months that that ban was put in place. And um, we, between ourselves and Threshold and all the various other uh, organisations that were involved in those discussions with the government, we would have liked to have seen more done sooner. Yeah. Um, so, like the tenant and Sitges scheme, that's been in place since uh, last year. Like, it, it, and it's, I guess it's its current form, um, you know, whereby it's to be used to prevent homelessness. It wasn't until the ban came to an end that that was really uh, pushed and resourced uh, by central government and then really taken up by local government. Yeah. And then we have the cost rental version of that now, which is really only finding its feet. Um, so those are two two really positive moves probably could have been acted on uh, sooner. Because I suppose there's a number of issues here that they, people will point towards the, the lack of houses that were built um, in mm. the mid noughties but mm. what always strikes me and maybe it strikes you as well Anne-Marie is just the, like the amount of ghost estates, the amount of vacant mm. houses yeah. we have in the county mm-hmm. uh, it seems I mean, I don't know. I, I've seen that other county councils certainly seem to be getting their act together. Limerick and mm, yeah. Donegal and Clare are three that have mm. been kind of quoted. What's your mm. take on what Cork County and City Council have done to try and combat vacant, derelict housing and to try and yeah. bring those houses back into a usable state? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I don't. I don't know enough about uh, Cork City and the county council individually to really yeah. know what activities there, but I am aware that there is certainly um, funding and budgets available uh, to bring uh, vacant properties back into use. Um, you know, where there's the repair and lease, where the, the, the council can approach the owner of the property and say, look, you don't have the funds to, to get it up and running. We'll take it off. You will get it up and running and we'll do it as a lease agreement over a certain number of years. And that's a home that's ready for someone 
to move into. If you know, they can also seek to purchase properties as well. So there, and there are, as you point out, there are some local authorities that really do seem to be excelling in it. So um, maybe it's a case of them. You know, other local authorities, maybe the likes of Cork, speaking to their counterparts elsewhere and go, well, how are you making this happen? Because yeah. presumably they, they're experiencing the same challenges. Uh, the, uh, yeah, there was a fantastic piece in the Examiner and I suppose it, it kind of highlighted, Claire, and I, I know that obviously you don't know the mm. intricacies of the case. I'm just, I, mm. I suppose I'm, I'm just quoting it because they're mm. saying that what's happening is by unearth, by by doing what they're doing now, they're actually unearthing more and they're finding that yeah. more people are willing to engage. And that's all good news for people yeah. who are potentially in a homeless situation. Exactly, exactly. And it, it is that proactive engagement. It's it's the going out and the knocking on the doors and finding out who owns the home and, and, and chasing after them. Because yeah. most of us, we have so much going on in our lives that, and if, let's say someone was left a property that was already in, in, in disrepair and they don't have the money to do anything with it and it's been on their hands probably you know, doesn't make any odds to them. Well, if somebody comes knocking on their door and says, we'll do that off, we'll take that off your hands, that suddenly makes life a lot easier. So certainly that proactive engagement by the local authorities, I think, is very important. And these are houses that can be turned around and got back into use very quickly. We don't have to wait for, uh, you know, 12, 18 months for, for new housing to be built. These can be turned around and put into use. Um. Because I suppose, just saying here, a lot of the uh, two thirds of the cases of people of the 479, it was mm. landlords who were selling up. I can tell you from somebody who's looking at buying a house and viewing a lot of houses now mm. that were previously rented and now landlords mm. are selling up. Are landlords being overly disincentivized at the moment? Are we, are we putting the pinch too much on landlords and ultimately that's affecting tenants? Mm. I think... Uh what's happening is that it's actually very beneficial for landlords to sell right now. So house prices are, are very high. Um, as to whether they'll keep climbing is uncertain. Um, also, if they do still have a mortgage on them, interest rates are going up. So it probably makes financial sense to, to cash out now. And then uh, there was, uh, there is a benefit, you know, for anyone who bought a rental property in around 2014, 2015, and who kept it as a rental for a minimum of seven years, they actually get a capital gains tax incentive to sell, like when they yeah. sell, rather. Yeah, and, know, so and a lot income. of their when when they're renting, an awful lot of that rental income is is taxed as well. So, is, would so, I suppose a reduction in tax for landlords help towards the current situation that we have at the moment? Well, in your in well, your opinion, well, the rental income is taxed the exact same way any PAYE worker pays their tax. Yeah. So, I think it would be a very it's a very big ask to look for rental income to be taxed at a lower rate than what every single one of us uh, pays for our 40 hours a week. So I think it would be, I don't think that's going to happen. However, what threshold have? We have proposed in a reduced tax on rental income in exchange for longer term lease agreements, so more secure tenancies. So there's a system in Portugal whereby the longer the security of the tenancy, the the greater the reduction of the tax on that rental income. And that and, and we're looking we're suggesting lease agreements whereby the landlord can only evict where there's been a breach, so where the person has to pay the rent or where they've damaged the property or engaged in antisocial behaviour. So we think that would be a good compromise uh, whereby, yes, reduce the tax on rental income, but it must be in exchange for greater security for the renter. Yeah. So, so where are we looking now, Anne-Marie? I suppose like we're going into, beginning to go into autumn now and winter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Like, are we? Are, are would threshold be advising towards another eviction ban, or w- where are we kind of going yeah. with this? Because there, I mean, all these. Like, you can't tell me that this, this whatever four hundred and seventy nine people that mm-hmm. have contacted mm-hmm. you will end up finding their forever home and now we're facing into the winter again where we're having more homeless people on the streets. Yeah, so it is it is a very difficult one because even last year when, you know, ourselves and others were involved in, in calling for the ban, you know, we did see it as the the least worst option is actually how we described it because mm-hmm. a ban is only ever a, a temporary fix. It's only a, a sticky plaster uh, for a bigger problem. And um, last year, coming into particularly September, late September, we were starting to see uh, the number of people needing homeless accommodation really increasing and that the local authorities weren't able to provide it. And people were being turned away and people were being having to go back and overhold of the properties they had been living in. People were ending up in other very difficult situations and that's really ultimately what led to that ban being put in place. And it's crazy to think that it was actually a crisis of emergency accommodation that resulted in that ban as opposed to the actual housing crisis we've been dealing with for, for 10 years now. 10 years. So if, if, if we see that situation arising again, yeah, we may very well find ourselves alongside others looking for that ban to be put in place. But it really should be, it should be used, that time should be utilised to devise and put in place more robust long-term solutions, as we discussed at the, at the top, you know, about the, the, the likes of the tenants in rather than waiting for the ban to run out to then put things in place to start putting them in uh, straight away. Okay, I'm Marie O'Reilly from Threshold. Thank you so much for taking our call. Um, and of course, I, I presume Threshold.ie is the best is the best way to get to you guys. Yeah, you can jump on our web chat on Threshold.ie, and you can also get us on one eight hundred four five four four five four. Perfect, Anne Marie. Thank you so much. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And you can call us 0818-104-106. Neil at redfm.ie on the emails. And I want to begin this latest part with an apology in that we have so many texts coming in this week. And I know everyone says they have loads of texts, but we do genuinely. I am actually holding, how much money do I have? Do I have about 10 pages of texts here? So I'm not going to be able to get through them all before I head off air at 12 o'clock and I want to get to all of them particularly those who are in disagreement with me particularly over the book is gay because I do feel it's very important that everybody has their opinion heard it's, I have given my opinion on the subject very happy to read others so I'm going to launch into them uh, could you please inform the newbie that the nationalists of the country have been asking for an ho- open healthy debate for around five years now while being fully ignored, ignored what will it achieve is showing more people that you every other media outlet and the government are running a massive propaganda machine that's working against the Irish people certainly uh, a, 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 an open and honest and mature debate about immigration needs to be had and about our immigration policy not just opening the doors and leading every single person that wants to come into the country that certainly is open for debate I suppose name calling on both sides outside of the public library I, I just wonder is that really actually helping towards uh, improving our immigration policy maybe the puck fair goat should be slaughtered and stuffed put up in his cage and his meat could be given to families that can't afford to buy meat would this make people happy I don't know your, your thoughts on that 086 104 a couple of texts I love listening to Kevin he's doing a great job thank you very much and another person saying I normally break out in a cold sweat when Neil is off but you've been fantastic so thank you very much for that I know there are a lot of people texting the opposite which I'm 
very also very happy to hear because I want everybody to be able to text in and give their opinion. Richie says, oh Kevin, I was listening and I did say about that um, Richie should listen properly to me. I actually did listen back to myself, Richie, and to be fair, in your credit, uh, I will pull my hands up and say I wasn't clear enough on what I was saying. I left it open to that interpretation. But uh, we're both basically on the same fence. I'm going to read your text. It says, when you brought up the subject of the library protests, you predicted people will be texting in to challenge being branded far right. But then you added that you understood why people on the other side of the argument would view these people as far right. My position is that they shouldn't be viewed as far right because far right is a specific definition. This is the tired old tactic of stifling debate by dismissing those on the other side of the argument as racist, sexist, homophobic or whatever in the mind of the public. Absolutely. I completely agree with you and this is why we need to engage with each other because unless we do that then you're just going to spend your whole life calling people far lefties and far righties and snowflakes and Nazis and perverts and this that and the other and ultimately nobody ends up learning anything and we are still in the same position that we're in so Richie completely agree with you uh, Sinn Féin a lot of Sinn Féin bashing to be honest it can't be any worse than Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are in power for how long and look at the state of the housing prices and health yes 100% completely agree with you there as a landlord my mortgage has gone up 400 euros the rent in no way covers it as the tenant is there a long time and so gets the rent cheap we pay 52% tax as well as property tax insurance and maintenance I've been phoning Cork County's council housing department daily for months to get my 2% increase they're a joke the anti-landlord people have no clue and that is why I wanted to put that to threshold earlier on. Um, on the subject of my conversation with Michael O'Donovan about the VAT increase, the hotels are hammering us left, right and centre. There's not a hope of going away for a few nights with kids. 400 euro for one night is the best offer we can get. I know Claire has done a, a lot of research in terms of going away and the package holidays you can get and it just makes more, more financial sense. The reason the people are struggling is because the outrageous prices they are charging. People can't afford it anymore. Somebody says the non-alcoholic beers are only created so brands can get around the loophole of not having allowed to advertise alcohol think about the advertising of alcohol zero zero and formula one everywhere absolutely um Max Verstappen, the latest to be on that, the uh, two-time world champion. Hi, Kevin. I'm going to visit my son, son in Dublin on Saturday. I'd love to stay over, but I simply cannot afford a hotel. The hotel situation is horrendous, 100%. I mean, we came out of Dublin Airport at one in the morning and I was forced to drive home and I got home about four in the morning absolutely exhausted because it was just so expensive to stay over. Um, the man on the radio right now has the right tune. That's John Byrne. Pubs, shops and other facilities are charging way more than they should be. The price of one thing goes up and companies, vendors jump on the bandwagon on necessarily. And finally, Kevin, are you serious? Michal Martin never did anything for Cork. Look at Debenhams, Cork Airport during COVID and all the rest. He never replies to emails, including Neil's. He is never available. Well, I would say in fairness he does respond to us from time to time, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say that he replies to us all the time. Right, I'm going to fly, keep going, keep flying on here because time is ticking against me. Um, I was down a couple of weeks ago in Kilmurray, in the Independence Museum down there. Uh, a friend of my partner's was coming over and she's a big history buff and we were deciding where we were going to go it was lashing raining and I said you know what let's go down to the Independence Museum because I've never been down there and I hear they do great work down there I met a man by the name of Noel Howard and he's on line one Noel good morning Mark Kevin, how are you? Very good, sir. Nice to speak to you again. Um, Thanks for the you. Absolutely. Um, the Independence Museum went down there, as I said a few weeks ago. I was really, really impressed, not only with what's in there, but how it's been put together and the new building that you guys have down there. I think you were saying it's a minor miracle you've managed to get everything in there that you have. <laughs> 
<laughs> it is. It's unbelievable, actually, Kevin, because all that presentation was in the old tiny museum. And frankly, when we were moving to the new museum, we found things we didn't even realise we had. And the, 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 the original museum was opened by Marl Max Sweeney Brewer back in 1965. T- totally voluntary. Set up initially by an old... No, no, sorry. No, are you on speakerphone there at the moment? Uh, one second, I'll, one second. I'm not. One second, now, Kevin. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can improve it. One second. No, Morris. But I'll tell. Look, while you're doing, while you're doing that, I'll tell people um, that the original museum is better, Kevin. Uh, much better. Okay, drive well, on there, Noel. Sorry for interrupting you. Sorry, no. I just think it's entirely voluntary. It started the tiny museum, which 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 fell, fell, got very badly damaged. We didn't own it, so we made a big bold step, and we we were generously donated a site where you were. And and we put together what you saw, which is a combination of, a, of the Independence Museum, Kilmory. It's also a community centre. And uh, it costs 600000 which is a lot of money for a totally voluntary group. And we have that debt down now to about less than thirty. So it's totally voluntary, as I say. Nobody's paid there. We're open seven days a week. And the main theme of the presentation really is the War of Independence because that's that, that, that these were the artifacts that we have, including documents, as you saw, weapons, and, and that type of thing. And yeah. when we when, when we so when we got a, a guy called Theo Dalka, who was a German, he did the design, and and I think he did a superb job. He, he, he put uh, all the old stuff into the new presentation. Amazing. I mean, even you're saying one of the rifles that was could have potentially been used to shoot Michael Collins during the assassination of Bale Nablaw or the ambush at Bale Nablaw. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed by how much history there is in Cork and particularly down that part of Cork. Do people take it for granted a little bit, do you think, in terms of just how much Cork has contributed to the foundation of our state? Absolutely. There, there's no doubt about that. If you, I read extensively on it, and, and Cork was the hotbed at that stage, even prior to 1916. It's the home place of Terence Maximilian, the mayor of Cork, and he actually cycled out from Cork and trained the local volunteers in 1914 uh, in, in this area. Tom Barry was extremely active in, 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 the, immediate, in the museum area, in fact, and the guy that, that initiated the museum was a member of the old area and they were great friends. And there were weapons stored in his back garden and that type of thing. So, so, the, so, so that's what really worried us, Kevin, in the old museum. It was leaking. It was totally inadequate. So we, we, we had an absolute historical treasure and we were extremely worried that we, we would lose it. That A and B then, Kilmurray had no community meeting place. So we, we really managed to combine both of these uh, in, in what I think is, uh, well, I would be prejudiced, but I think it's an excellent uh, no, it's a lovely building architecturally and every other way. 100% and, and it's the volunteers that make it I mean whatever about the building and the artefacts but it is it was the tour by yourself but it was the passion that you had and the amount of history that you had had kind of brought it to life and your love of your local area it's just a kind of a perfect combination you've done a lot of reading into the assassination of, of Michael Collins um, oh. Uh, is there you know, a feature in the Irish Times there about two months ago? Jerome McGree, we did it. We did. We did a, a video of it as well. That's yeah, I was actually born, like Kevin, in Bale the Blow. In Bale the Blow itself. So yeah. you would be a man who had known awful lot. I presume you know the, um, the some of the conspiracy theories because even you were saying to me some of the choices that were made on that day were very strange. What's what's your take on that day? Well, well, well I, I have a, I was in the 
reserve defense force for 31 years. So, yes, I have a certain, I suppose, military knowledge. I, the first thing I cannot believe is that, that, that they, they actually stopped where the museum is, the convoy, and they headed out towards being the blow, towards the crossroads. And by the coincidence, there was a Republican meeting going on in, uh, very close by, and there was a, a guard at the, at the pub, and he came out. We have his shotgun there in the museum as well. And they had lost their way at that stage. Emmett Dalton was a very senior, um, he, he was in the, in, the, in the First World War, he was a British Army officer, and he, so he, there's no doubt he had a huge amount of military experience. So they headed off down to Clonakilty and Skibbereen, various different places. And then what I find totally inexplicable is they came back the same way. You never, ever, ever did that. Uh, do that. You never go yeah. and come back the same way because obviously, which happened there, they were seen going out. Uh, the sentry had been the law crossroads reported that to some people. The, the message was passed on to Bandon, and and they decided that they would put a they, they, they'd mine the road and they put up a, a column up on the road above it. In actual fact, by the time. The Collins convoy arrived where he was subsequently shot. Most of, 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 the, of the IRA guys had to part because they were waiting so long. And, and, and it was a fairly frenzied effort then to, to engage. And we all know what happened at that time. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of conspiracy, th- as I said, conspiracy theories around it. People question why Eamon de Valera was in the area at the moment. I know we had a woman on air saying that her, I think a former neighbour of hers had said that he had walked in and had breakfast in her kitchen years and years ago. Is that is there any sort of legs to that conspiracy theory or all, at all, or is it just total nonsense? Well, he certainly was. He certainly was in the area, and he and he he, he was he was informed and that that the Collins convoy had passed through. But but but, but 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 and 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 he was kind of interested in 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 in, in maybe doing some negotiation. But for, at, at that stage, for for for, for political response reasons, uh, there was so much sidelined in the whole thing, and he disappeared up. I've been extensively into it and I don't think there was any uh, I don't think there was anything ulterior or I think he just departed and went away because because there there's there's more evidence supporting then that there was a there was a cannon uh, in Crookstone and, and his housekeeper came into Crookstone village and bought lots of supplies and that would suggest that they, that they were expecting some sort of a meeting and there's a theory that, that Michael Collins would would in fact was going to, to a, a scheduled meeting at that Cannon's house. And that this Cannon is almost happened. a forgotten, like I, I mean even I hadn't heard about him. Cannon Tracy. Cannon Tracy, I hadn't heard yeah. about him since I, came, uh, since I came down to the museum but he was actually a hugely influential figure in terms of trying to get the pro and anti treaty side to sit down together. Yeah, there were so there were so many of them really. Uh, Senator Hager did well. He was a was commander uh, of the of the first brigade, uh, um, old army. Subsequently, he played a massive part. First of all, he fought, he fought and was very active. And but then when 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 this whole civil war thing started to to to, to care, he he put a huge amount of work into trying and, and, and get them back talking. Yeah. I personally think that Michael Collins was a huge loss in for for one huge reason that. 
it would appear that he maintained huge, he had a, a, a huge massive context all over Ireland. And I think that, that even as the Civil War progressed, he would have been able to talk to the likes of Tom Barry and, 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 and Liam Lynch and all these, uh, com- uh, all these, these anti-treaty forces. He, would have been, he, he knew them all personally. He had a good relationship with them. He was a, a, certainly a superb diplomat. And I think that if, if Michael Collins had lived, that he would have managed to get all these guys together and say, look, guys, we're, we've reached the end of the road here. We, we better work together towards towards a settlement. Yeah, and I, I, as I said, I, I, I wish we... I've been saying this to people all day, but it is kind of Friday. Um, if people want to learn more, if they want to come down to the museum, um, what's the best way of... I know you're situated just off the main road there uh, beyond uh, Lasarda on the way to McCroom. You turn left there. But uh, KilmurrayMuseum.com. But uh, you guys are open seven days a week, am I right in saying that? We're open seven days a week, Kevin, including Sundays, including bank holidays. Um, we're open... We, we advertise from two to five, but in actual fact, there are people there from eleven and and and, and from eleven to five every every day. So so we're delighted to see people at any stage. And it's it's primarily a self-guided museum, as you know. We are only two pleased, of course, to to expand and 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 give additional information. But it's primarily a self-guiding museum, and um, so so yeah. Um, we we for, just a bit quickly. Then we 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 have a series of lectures happening then during the winter, winter, which are extensively advertised. And we're developing the courtyard for for various uh, recreational purposes for the entire community, not known just for for, his, for the history for for Kilmore historical, but for 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 the, for, for the local community. It can be used for meetings, can be used for um, exercises, whatever yeah. is is uh, so. Brilliant. And uh, look, I know you guys have given us four uh, passes, four family passes uh, to go down and see it uh, for people to go down and see it themselves. And I'm sure with the weather the way it is at the moment, people will certainly make use of that. Um, so callers yeah. 9, 10, 11 and 12. And Noel, thank you so much again for taking the call and the very best of luck to the Independence Museum. I would really encourage people to go down and, and, and give it a check out. And tell you, Kevin, I'd like to thank you on behalf of Independence Museum, Kim Murray, for, for, for your help and for your interest. And, and, and look, we look forward to seeing your, your, your listenership and anyone else that likes to come. 100%. Perfect. Noel, thank you very much. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. So many texts to get through today. Um, I won't get through them all. Um, just on the subject of this book is gay because I do want to uh, appreciate the people who are saying. Um, somebody says you're too scared to read it out on air. Who would have thought? Hi, Kevin is getting so preachy on the radio. Kevin had opinions like us all, but he should remain a bit more balanced. He's coming across as tone deaf. Fair enough. The sooner Kevin is removed from the radio, the better. You'll have to drag me out kicking and screaming. Uh, your view on that despicable book and its availability to young children is horrific. 12 to 13 are teenagers by name only. They are still very impressionable. Shame on you. This presenter is trying very hard to dig himself out of a hole. Pure clown. Uh, but yet we are bad. The ones who are bad, if we tell our kids there are only two genders. Uh, no, these books have no place in the children's section, says Maureen and Clon. Change the radio situation. Who is this Kevin guy spouting personal lectures to us all? Who does he think he is? Uh, these people, Kevin, a bit biased, are we? Kevin, you have no idea what you're talking about. You just said 15, 16, 17-year-olds. This book is available to 12-year-olds. Wake up. And those are just some of the selection of texts I've gotten on the subject of this book is gay. And if you do want to text in, it's 86 But to matter is a little bit lighter as we get towards the end of a Friday evening um, or a Friday morning, should I say. Um, 
um, a new play to come to the Ballymaloo Grain Store. This is something that um, I have Aidan, Aidan Dooley with me. Aidan, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, Aidan, like, I, I, I don't need to be telling people because what I've been told from anybody I know that have gone to see this Tom Green play, they are singing its praises. <laughs> it's been very successful, Kevin. It's a fantastic story. And uh, I just managed to tell it in a kind of a in, in an excited, uh, energized way, and I um, and people seem to love it. It's been fantastic. Yeah, Tom Crean, Antarctic Explorer is the name of it. It gets underway at eight o'clock on August thirty first. Um, a remarkable man, Tom Crean, and I know that lots have been said about him, but really to think about the sort of work that he did was incredible, particularly given the time that he was doing it in. Well, yeah, exactly. He, he he went to the Antarctic with with the, the infamous Captain Scott twice, and then he went back on the the, the tortured journey of the endurance with Ernest Shackleton, and Tom was there the whole time. He was in, he was at the key moments. He was in the he he was an amazing man for saving other people's lives. He was very altruistic. He was uh, he was very much a a man who who believed in, I think believed, none of us really know, because he never kept a diary, he never wrote down things, all we have are third party kind of references to him, but he must have been a very, very uh, humble, but extremely dedicated man to the, to the to the any job he had in the Antarctic, he gave it a hundred percent, and that included anything he was asked to do to save other people's lives. Yeah, I mean, and I, I wish uh, we're 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 tight on time, but how do you try and kind of break down then a life that is so? I suppose you know, it's it wasn't the life of uh, an artistic, creative individual, but a man <laughs> who really was a, a survivor at heart. How do you how do you kind of break that down then into delivering something on stage? Well, the simplest way is just you just I just kind of tell the story. I, I kind of tell the nuts and bolts. I bring people's imagination on stage. So it's very much a Shanaki style approach, Kevin. It's it's me standing on the, the. I even talk to the audience at times. I ask them questions. They have to answer me back. So they all they all know I'm not Tom Cream, but our imagination kind of sinks into the wonders of theatre, which is you then allow yourself to believe I am. So it's as if Tom is talking to you, and that's. Uh, that's a very powerful kind of a simple, effective way of of telling the story of anyone. Yeah. If the audience kind of believe, oh my God, I, I can believe this guy is Tom Crean and Tom Crean is talking to me and it's very... So I kind of tell the simple nuts and bolts of the story. That's the simplicity of the show and also the effectiveness of the show. And I, I suppose the 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 ability of using that imagination allows you to open up a whole range of, I suppose, the potentials. What was he thinking at the time, or why did he make the decisions that he made that we we can't we don't really get in historical documents. So there's quite a lot of, I suppose, interpretation when it comes to this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And also, my my interpretation of Tom Tom wouldn't have talked to anyone. He was a very very quiet man. Um, so I have to lift out of his my interpretation of him, channel him through me in a sense as a conduit, and make the connection with it, with two, three, four hundred people in an audience. Yeah. You know, so so I'm not doing a representation of Tom in 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 purest form. I'm doing an interpretation of Tom so that his story is told, and that's um, that has worked for the audience. The twenty years, believe it or not, I've been, I've been telling the story of Tom on and off, and uh, the Ballymaloo gig is, um, 
is the start of a couple of weeks going around the country. But the Ballymaloo gig is a, is a lovely space, and I'm really looking forward to playing. Yeah, do you do you find and just finally, Aidan, do you find twenty years on that people are still engaging with the story of Tom Crean in the way that they were when you first brought it to the stage? Absolutely. In fact, a lot of people come back. I have people who come back three or four times because they, they get nourished by the story every time they hear it. It, it. it helps their life, you know, motivationally. So it's not just, uh, you know, spots the dog went and sat on the, on the stool. You know what I mean? It's, it, there's a whole load of stuff that people get from it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful um, joy for me to bring a story to people. So um, I, know you're a, I know you're stuck for time, Kevin. I know you're stuck for No, time. not at all. And look, um, I, I really appreciate you having a chat with us. I know even a story about Tom Crean where I know the, the Black and Tans turned up at his house and he had to yes, run yes. up to the attic to fetch a, a, the Union Jack from Shackleton's expedition to, to say yes. that actually and that, that, that actually funny enough now you're talking about the war of independence and stuff um, he was actually integral in saving a young man's life at that time as well where uh, they accused a young fella who then said I was with Tom Crane knowing that they had found some of his memorabilia so they then let the young lad off because Tom said what needed to be said so there's a whole enmeshed world that Tom is involved in yeah an amazing gravita around the man as well Aidan thank you so much for speaking to us however brief it was we do have two tickets uh, for the show in Ballymaloo Grain Store on the 31st of August that starts at 8 o'clock and a pre-show dinner available at 6 o'clock at Ballymaloo House for those who are attending as well um, Aidan thank you so much I, I would wish you the very best of success but I don't think I need to uh, 20 years still going is a, is a testament to how popular this is thanks Kevin thanks for ha- having me on Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Sitting down, wasting away with you in the car. And memories, they tend to fade with an easy heart. Our story, we'd never part Like stars in the sky, we'd shine when it's getting dark Cause love, it grows We pave it to sand on the floor If love grows easy Then I won't ask for more You are the crown And I felt like I was gone wrong I'm settling down, loving how easy it goes. But you were just lying in pieces on the floor. Just an ordinary guy with a life who always wants more. Because love. 
if we pave it to sand on the floor. If love grows easy, then I won't ask for more. Cause love It grows easy In our love it will last If we pave it to sand on the floor If love grows easy Then I Oh my god, that's just you know, like we've had a lot of live music in, and oh, thanks to Owen Hennessy at Live Music Promotions, and every single time I'm amazed by the talent that we have. It's unreal. Yeah. It's just, I like, I know you, I don't want to insult you by comparisons, but like there was a little bit of Ben Howard there, there was Tallest Man on Earth there, definitely. You're very right, though. You were very right with the Ben Howard. Yeah, <laughs> big yeah, fan. Very right, big fan of Ben Yeah, Howard. it's big just, fan. it's just incredible. Like, what age are you, James? 19. I just it, it never bigger because look I know obviously Keen De Crow is the big one and we all hear about that but like just the amount of talent in, in Cork is unbelievable so how long have you been writing music? Uh, write music roughly well seriously it last since I went to college so September last year but I've, I've been writing maybe a year before that on and off like that's what <laughs> And how are you getting on? Plenty of gigs. This is Love Grows Easy, which is the new single be released next Friday. So nice little exclusive for ourselves there. Thank you very much. Um, on Spotify and Apple Music, so you can search James Keegan on that. But plenty of gigs coming up as well. Yeah, very happy now at playing in Collins and State Church again. So really happy with the venues I'm playing as well. So I, I, I just, I just, it, it, it amazes me just the the vocal range and the the like. You know, when you write, when you go down and sit and sit down to write a song, like what's the first thing you kind of attack? Is it you just strum out a few chords and kind of go from there? Do you have words written down? Do you have them scratched on the back of napkins? Or um, usually, I just go in and do it. I just don't think about things. <laughs> I just go in and strum a guitar. That's I wrote this song in my college uh, on my lunch break. I went in um, in CSN. There was a, a studio, and I went in there and I, I wrote my last. Uh, my second single also in the college so I, I, I get a lot of creative ideas when I'm, when I'm around creative people I suppose and just went in and knocked it out and kind of freshened it up when I went home then Amazing You got a bit of uh, support along the way from Cork's favourite son he was in Mayfield Community School gave you a few words he, of advice Yes he did He did. Roy yeah. Keane Roy, Roy was very good to me Yeah, he called me called me over class actually uh, when I was when I was in school and we were building a recording studio, studio at the time and he came in to visit and he actually Helped um, helped a lot with that, to be fair, but Ryan, he's really good. Amazing, pal. Uh, it's just, I'm blown away, as I say, about the talent here. Uh, James Keegan, you're playing uh, 25th of August in Collins, you're playing the 8th September in the Sea Church, and again, back there on the 16th September. So if people want to check you out, they don't have to go very far. 
Yeah, that's the, that's the one. Perfect, James. Look, thank you so much for coming in and uh, thanks again to uh, the promotions, uh, Owen Hennessy at Live Music Promotions uh, for that. And just before I finish, with thanks to our friends at Cork and a Fork, plenty happening around Cork and as you've heard, James is playing gigs in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but also, in the next couple of weeks, there is the small matter of a huge festival, food festival right across the country. Uh, am I right in saying, is it Diam or Diam O'Connor? You'll have to correct me. Apologies, Diem. I started badly. Diem. The second one is right. Diem, Diem right. O'Connor. Diem, uh, tell us about uh, your favourite summer story. Well, okay, it's, uh, it's gone back a long time now. It was only about 10 years of age at the time, I'd say. And, um, you know, uh, like we had, uh, I suppose, and the, the, it's gone back many years. And at that time, there was a lot of big families around, so it's the worst. There wasn't a lot of money in families at the time. but So I was doled out on your relations farm for a summer holiday. So, um, but like, I was I was willing to try it anyway. So, yeah. um, it was in Cool Main. Have you ever heard of Cool Main? I have. Yeah, I have Cork indeed. Have yeah, in West Cork there. Fine part of um, the world. So the cousins had a farm there, like, and I went there for about five years. I was going there from 10 until I was 15, you know, until I started working. But I used to go every summer for all the holidays from school, you know. But um, it was it was just amazing. These, they, the memories I have in that, you know, like I could go on speaking about them all day because I took to it like a duck to water, I suppose, really. Yeah. And, uh, so so world. down in West Cork, I suppose, um, what was it about it that, that kind of made it so special? Well, um, the, um, I suppose, when it's all the things that you do on a farm, and of course, it was, we spoke, there used to be ploughing the fields at him and not with a horse, you know, and yeah. the horse's back and the plough, he pulling away in the plough, like, and I was in my short pants, of course, like, but I was covered in hairs after getting off the horse, you know, this kind of thing. It was a sweaty summer's day, like. But, and then, um, you know, just sitting up on tractors and then they allowed to steer the tractors in the field when they're walking and uh, helping with the, on the combine harvest or with other farmers as well, with the locals, you know. Yeah. And, um, Okay, yeah, got, it's a long way away from what we have now. There'll be there'll be no sitting on horses and dragging combine harvesters well, now. It's all, it's all automated. It's all, it, it's all changed now, and and you know across the way and across the bay was um they they used to be a platform and outdoor dancing on Sunday nights in, in Harbourview, you know, yeah. used to go across the tide and walk across the channel over to the to music and dance away there until about eleven or half that night. It was fantastic. Oh like, my god, the freedom! You know, you're, the freedom. You're, you're connected with the nature all the time because. Uh, you know, even just the sounds of, of bees, birds during the day, like they're just so much more, you're just so much aware of everything around you, really. You know, the sounds that you hear, the animals and, and, and the sea, they were so close to us. We just don't, the bottom of the hill, really, the beach, you know. So everything was just amazing. Magical, right? Amazing. Magical is the right word. Um, also magical, which we found out, and being very close to nature, a cruise with Cork Harbour Cruises down from Custom House Quay um, and around the harbour. Uh, do you fancy swapping farm life for a two and a half hours on the sea, Diem? Oh, that, that would be lovely, yeah. Be great. <laughs> great. We can hear the report, see what you make of it. <laughs> Pardon? I said we'd have to get the report back from you, see what you make of it all these years later. Oh, yeah. But, but like, I mean, I have so many experiences of the um, uh, the fireworks, of course, in Cork, make sure you look at it as well. You could, you know, at night, I stopped in my bedroom, look over across the bay, you know, you oh, see the fireworks. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it was just, everything was amazing. And, and just to, uh, 
learn, you know, you're, you're, see, you're watching the animals being born as well, the calves and yeah, pigs and yeah. that you want. It's all, it's a fierce learning period, really, you know. Yeah, 100%. Look, great times. And uh, Diem, thanks so much for getting in touch. Uh, the two tickets for sailing, shocking in shanties. They are Sunday, August 20th, uh, two and a half hour cruise on Cork Harbour Cruises, courtesy of our friends in Cork on a fork. Um, and thanks to them and thanks indeed to my whole team for the whole week. Seamus O'Connor, Claire, or sorry, Claire O'Connor, Seamus Whelan and Breda Forrest for their help over the week. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.